So welcome back to Diaries of the Wild Ones. Once again, a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia for supporting me in the adventurous lifestyle. If you guys need any gear for your next adventure, running, camping, climbing, hiking, you guys name it, these guys have it. So go to wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Also, a huge thank you to Free Brewing Co., organic preservative-free beer. You'll find them at Dan Murphy's and BWS. Big black can, silver letters that say free. Organic preservative-free beer. It's a no-brainer. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so I recently just did a trip to Norfolk Island, which is out in the South Pacific, slightly northwest of New Zealand and south of New Caledonia. And I was just completely blown away by the people, the history, the culture, and just the beauty of the place. So this podcast is like no other I've done before. It's a bit chopped up and a bit put together, but you're about to meet Rachel. Now, Rachel took me on a tour around the island and we recorded in true Diaries of the Wild Ones fashion outdoors in some windy areas and you're going to hear us pause. You're going to hear us pause the conversation and then relocate and then start again. Now, basically, she took me on a tour around the island. So I just had like my, my setup with me and would get to a location and then she'd tell me all these stories and this history of where we were. And then we'd jump in the bus, go somewhere else and start recording again. But it's absolutely brilliant. It was literally the highlight of my trip. Now, there are so many tales and legends of this island. And I just found it so interesting. And Rachel really warms up throughout the recording and tells me so many amazing stories. Now, I I don't know what you guys believe. So each their own, but Norfolk is the fourth most haunted place or fourth most haunted island. Rachel. Now, Rachel took me to the most haunted part of the island. It's a place called the Duplex. And I had my own unique experience there on mic and off mic by seeing several ghosts. Now, each ghost I saw, Rachel off mic gave me their, their individual story, which was absolutely incredible. But sorry, out of respect for the dead, we, we didn't record that part. And we finished the tour off in a cemetery with a really interesting story about some Freemason convict mutineers. So the stories just keep coming throughout this podcast. So like, I really suggest listen all the way to the end. It's just so interesting. Now I'm probably going to butcher this, but I'm going to give you a brief history of Norfolk Island so you can kind of get the gist before we go into this podcast. But there's kind of three main stories here. There's the mutiny on the bounty, the British convict settlement, and the family of the mutineers going to Norfolk. So from memory, Norfolk Island was settled by the Polynesians who had been long gone by the time Captain Cook got there. The British Empire claimed the island before the French could, and it soon became a convict settlement. By being the end of the of the empire, Norfolk Island soon had the reputation for being the most brutal of all the convict settlements, where the repeat offenders, so basically the bad, the toughest of the convicts were sent. So it was a very brutal place, and that's why it has such a dark history. Okay, so a whole nother side story is the famous mutiny on the bounty. So I think there's 2,000 books and five motion pictures about this story, the famous story of the mutiny Okay, so basically, the, the Bounty was a Royal Navy ship that was sent to collect breadfruit from Tahiti and, and take them to the West Indies. Now, breadfruit plants at the time, Captain Cook, when he first went to Tahiti, he documented that 
the locals were thriving from this fruit. So the British thought, oh, we'll take all these plants back to the West Indies so we can feed our slaves. It's going to be a cheaper, more economic way. But when the bounty went to Tahiti to collect these breadfruit, they were suddenly like living this for five months. They lived this like beautiful island life with like lush tropical life with Tahitian women. Fletcher Christian himself, one of the crew members, fell in love. Now, captain, the captain of the ship, Captain William Bly, was known for being quite brutal to his men. So I think these mutineers fell in love with this lifestyle. They end up having a falling out and they threw the captain off the boat and took over the boat. They took over the bounty. So they set Captain William Bly adrift with 18 loyal crewmen on a small boat in one of the history's greatest feats of seamanship. Bly navigated this tiny vessel for 3,618 nautical miles and I think he only lost one man. Now, Fletcher Christian and the mutineers sailed back to Tahiti, where most remained and were later, later trialed for mutiny. But Christian, along with eight fellow mutineers and some Tahitian women, sailed off into the unknown, eventually discovering the isolated Pitcairn Islands. At the time, not even marked on British maps. So basically, the mutineers lived on the Pitcairn Islands and ended up having lots of children to their Tahitian wives. Then the island had a mass fallout when the remaining mutineers and Tahitian men ended up killing each other. So long story short, their families were getting too large for the island to sustain themselves. At the time, Norfolk Island was shutting their convict settlement and moving to Tasmania. So the Queen granted the Pitcairn Islanders, a.k.a. the mutineers' families, to be able to relocate and settle on Norfolk Island, which is now where their descendants, their names, and the bloodline lives on there today. So if I've butchered this story, I'm sorry. It's just a quick little history lesson that kind of makes this podcast make sense. These stories are my favorite type of stories, raw stories, like raw adventure of survival, hard times breeding hard men. And thank you to Rachel from, from Bounty Tours and also Island Explorer Tours. I hope I got that right. It kind of doesn't really matter because it's a small island. All you have to do is just ask for the tour guide, Rachel, and everyone will point in the right direction. She's absolutely amazing. It was the highlight of my trip. If you guys are ever on Norfolk Island, you have to do a tour with this woman. We just had such an amazing afternoon together. Thank you so much. You guys enjoy this history lesson. Okay, how's that? Do you feel comfortable? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's a little bit different being on mic, isn't it? Mm, I don't like it. You don't like it? No. It's different, but mic'd up to a bus. Oh, yeah. so when you do the tours here, do, do you sometimes, are you on mic? Yeah, or we use little handheld, on mic all the time, but I'm not looking at them. <laughs> yeah, so all you have to do, yeah, it's it kind of like how you have the mic is like a, about a fist from your mouth. Okay, about that. Okay, you comfortable? Mm, sort of, yeah. You're sort of. <laughs> okay, Rachel. Rachel, this is actually quite, quite a different podcast, and once again, I've done it to the listeners. We're sitting on a beach with wind, with waves in the background, beautiful scenery here in the South Pacific. This is what I find so weird because people are like, oh, you're in Norfolk Island. That, and they kind of think it's part of Australia. One of the, it is part of Australia. Is it, do you consider it? Because a lot of the locals, when I say, oh, 
if you mention them being Australian, they've kind of got a big kickback from it because, and that's the biggest thing learning about this place is realizing it's like its own, it's, it's just separate. There's this tight, there's this Tahitian blood here. There's this British blood mix and I've mm. never been anywhere like it in the world. And it's just, it's completely blown my mind, especially the history of this place. And this is why I've asked you, Rachel, to kind of give us a little history lesson on one of the most wildest kind of interesting places I've been. I think if you ask most Norfolk Islanders, they would say that they're Pacific people. And um, we're very much part of the Pacific. And our, our, our history is, you know, almost a thousand years of human habitation from um, the early Polynesian settlement story um, through two British settlements. The, the penal settlement from 1825 to 1855 was probably the most extreme and most br brutal, brutal penal settlement in the empire. And then, of course, the Anglo-Polynesian story is the story of the Pitcanners, um, who were descended from the Bounty Mutineers and the, the, the Polynesian partners, and they arrived in 1856. So um, that so was the famous, the Mutiny on the Bounty, which there's mm. been several books on. There's even been movies on there's it, hasn't been, it? There's been over 2,000 books written on the Mutiny the, on the Bounty. The most famous five, mutiny. Five major motion pictures, one gorgeous cyclorama, there was a lot more to that story than just some blokes that nicked a ship. It's very big in our lunchbox. It's really a really big part of our story. And we glorify the mutineers and, and um, adore our foremothers. But, yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous story. It's a, it's a saga. What? This island is just full of stories. Would you, would you mind starting with... Do you think we should start with the story of the mutiny? Where would you... As history of Norfolk, this, this wonderful place. Where would you like to start? Well, this place is about ships and stories. And um, the Mutiny on the Bounty has been depicted in, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood motion pictures and, you know, Tahitian girls on a beach dancing and, and um, very rough, rough seamen. It's a, it's a much richer story than that culturally um, that the culture is very rich and um, the language itself is de derived from the dialects spoken by the bounty mutineers at the end of the 1700s and a lot of ancient Polynesian words so that in itself is really unique we we have um, traditional island staples uh, like the hihi, the pilahai, the mada, the, the, um, the wana they're all, all traditional foods that lots of islanders still eat. So it's like a hidden culture. Yeah. Um, What's so weird, what brought me here, is that one of my best friends, Martin, one of the O'Connors of the, the O'Connor family here, he moved to Australia when he was 17, and I met him when he was 18. So him and I have been kicking around together for 16 years. And he always said he was from Norfolk, and I didn't really understand until I've actually he's brought me out here and I realised, I'm like, well, Marty's not from oh, he's Australia. Hold, he's holding back on, he's yeah. holding out on you, isn't he? And now that they're, yeah. he's here, it's like there's this whole dialect that they actually speak. Even mm. the young guys that are our age, like Yoli and Mola. Yeah. <laughs> so there's all like these words that suddenly mm. like, I'm like, oh my God, and this rich history. But one thing I've been looking around, because right now we're sitting here around colonial ruins. Which, well, they're not really ruins because they've been kept quite well, but... When I'm like looking at this place, it's like hard times breed hard men. And all these tales, like when I think about like the, the mutineers like Fletcher Christian that made it here, 
Well, he didn't actually make no, it. He, he didn't did make it. it here. Would you Would you like to touch on the mutiny? None of us lived through it. <laughs> it's very, very hard to to know exactly what did happen. Um, there's so many versions of that story. I think uh, you know if you look at Captain Bly, he he didn't rule with the lash. He 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 ruled with his tongue. And uh, he, he was perhaps not a, um, a good manager of men. He was an extraordinary mariner. Um, you know, he again ran into trouble with the, the 102nd Regiment during the Rum Rebellion as well. And uh, the, the final straw, which they say led to the mutiny on the bounty, was a squabble over his personal um, cachet of coconuts. And he accused the men of stealing his coconuts. But it was a... A, a long lead up and you've got to remember that um, you know going back to England and the life they had led, left behind would not seem nearly as appealing as staying in Tahiti with some beautiful women and an abundance of food. Um, at that time in history the um, it was not uncommon to receive 500 lashes if you were a, you were a sailor at sea um, this this penal settlement in front of us was severe. You could receive up to 300 lashes for a single uh, offence and the authorities were discouraging splitting um, so that meant that the prisoner would receive his entire sentence in one session. So all you ever learn from places like this is hurt people hurt people. Um, certainly it's believed that Fletcher Christian hadn't planned to mutiny. He was building a raft to leave the bounty and he was persuaded otherwise. And I, I think perhaps he regretted that decision. Um, it's likely that they all died, all the mutineers died on Pitcairn Island despite um, some uh, tall tales to the, to the contrary. All of them died terrible deaths apart from um, Ned Young who died from asthma and, and John Adams was the last mutineer. Within the first three to four years, they had continued with the murder and mayhem and it left nine women and 25 children standing. So those, those women certainly were major socialisers and, and influencers. So the people that came here in 1856 were um, the grandchildren and children of the mutineers and our Polynesian foremothers. Yeah, so when they, when they mutineered, and they fled and ended up on the Pitcairn Islands. What, they took 10 Tahitian women? They took um, nine women and 12 men. <clears throat> nine women and 12 men. And so yeah, the descendants today are still, that's the blood that's here yeah, today? Yeah, only six of those women had children. Really? Yeah. And it's funny because the families that are here, what, there's the Adams, Quintals, mm. the we Buffets. Use, we use the mutineer, mutineer names and we almost forgot... Um, forgot the women and they were, they were an important part of the story so we're learning to remember them again um, people are starting to name their girl children after them and of course there's always at least three, three Fletcher Christians in almost every generation of Islanders they become royalty it's, it's like the Australian convict story um, they're our royalty yeah mm. I've noticed too um, a lot of the Islanders here have Tahitian tattoos yeah, like, like honouring that. Yeah, it, absolutely. It is about honouring, honouring our story, honouring our place in the Pacific. Um, some of it's cultural revitalisation, but it's, it's about identity. It's about who you are, and it, it's 
you know you get to decide who you are and what's important to you and when you when you have traditional tattoos you're wearing your story on your skin it's in, indelible it's it's forever um, so it really is a um, it's a big statement yeah um, and, and you'll see a lot of the jewelry as well reflects our story and the interweaving um, over time weaving is a really um, a, an important cultural marker the island hats are iconic um, if someone gives you an island hat they, they, they think an awful lot of you and they respect you immensely. Yeah, this is what I was finding so weird because I've been to Tonga, I've been to Fiji, I've been to Tahiti, I've been to Hawaii, mm. and then suddenly I've been to New Zealand, and then suddenly you're in Norfolk Island. It's, it's like this mixture of... Mm. It's, yeah, it's really curious. It's, it's, it's so, really curious. It's nothing like the others, yet it no, no. has similarities. It could be nothing like any of them because the story is so unique. Mm. Um, it, it's one little pinpoint in history in which English sailors and Thai, uh, Polynesian people came together and created a new, a new people. Yeah. And we think of ourselves as a people. And it, it's created an uneasy relationship between uh, the colonial authorities and today the Commonwealth government yeah. um, authorities. It's, it's a very uneasy relationship. It's... It causes a great deal of angst. Is that is that why there's like pros and cons to the Australian takeover? There's always pros and cons to everything. It's yeah. it's it's very difficult to make a definitive statement on on whether one uh, one system and one way of doing things is right or wrong. Yeah. Culture is simply the way we do things, and we do things quite differently you've noticed that and um a lot of islanders don't feel that that difference is recognized or or respected yeah yeah it's it is a it is a sensitive topic yeah yeah so with this being a colonial settlement was Mm. it just for convicts and what was the convicts for did they come here first before australia no it was settled at the same time so um if we go back and have a look at our Australian colonial story, uh, they'd lost the American colonies in the War of Independence, uh, so they were looking for somewhere to send uh, the prisoners. And Captain Cook had uh, arrived on Norfolk Island in 1774. He he uh, landed. He didn't discover it because there were early Polynesian settlers here. He saw that there was an abundance of what he called the spruce pine and the harakeki, which is the New Zealand flax. And he thought that would be fabulous for masts and spars and rope and sail and cordage for the British Navy. So uh, when the first fleet arrived, 20 days after they arrived in New South Wales, Norfolk Island was settled. Uh, so this is the oldest and largest of the Australian um, World Heritage listed convict sites. Um, the, the, the first British settlement was colonising an agrarian. So uh, they quickly got the convicts off a lot uh, off. Um, government stores and onto allotments so that it was it was designed to be the food basket in the main colony and also to exploit those resources um, it was too expensive so from 1788 to um, 1814 uh, that early British settlement was very very different to the subsequent one they closed it down relocated almost everyone to Tasmania so if you've been to Tassie it's new Norfolk Norfolk Plains 
It's really? a continuing story, and and you can meet living descendants of those convicts from that earlier time. So they literally took the convicts from here to there. They resettled Tasmania. Early Tas early early colonial Tasmania was settled with um, people from Norfolk Island. Yeah. But I can imagine being, especially in the 1700s, like this being such a brutal place for convicts. Because um, didn't they have to do all their work with leg irons on? Not in that. Uh, that early settlement was very different to this to the subsequent settlement. I keep. I think you're trying to draw um, draw us back to the penal settlement period when it was a maximum security prison. So at that time, between 1825 and 1855. Um, it was a maximum security prison. It was an island penitentiary, and most of the built fabric that you see around us today comes from that period. So there was no trade with passing ships, theoretically. There was no land grants. There were no women serving colonial sentence, so there were no women convicts. Initially, they withdrew all of the women. Um, it was a place oh. of extremist punishment short of death. Um, it was held out to be the ne plus ultra of prison degradation. So at that time, it housed the worst of the felony from across the colonies. Um, there were new hands that they did send out under the McConaughey system, and he was a, um, a very liberal-minded um, reformist, and he had a huge impact on the treatment of prisoners in a modern context. But most of what you see around you was built at a time when there are upwards of 2,000 prisoners undergoing sentence. And that was a very brutal time in our history. The island earns its reputation for tyranny and cruelty during that time. And, and that's the time when the legends and stories really come to the fore. Is that where, like, the, the story of, like, Bar Barony Duffy. Barony Duffy. <laughs> Barony Duffy, murderer's mound, bloody bridge, gallows gate. Saying <laughs> <laughs> it like that. We took the kids on a ghost tour the other night. It wasn't a real ghost tour like mm. you do. It was literally we just <laughs> told them that we had to walk to the cemetery and back. We got about 30 metres from camp mm. and they all ran screaming <laughs> just because of the history of this place, you know, just hearing. But what's... Just the idea. But what was Barney, Barney Duffy? So Barney Duffy, it's a fabulous legend and I love the legends. So legend has it, this convict Barney Duffy, he escapes and he lives in a hollow of a tree, a big old pine tree seven long years eking out an existence on roots and berries and whatever fish he can, can, can catch and robbing the settlement gardens blind. Anyway, there's three soldiers from the 99th Regiment. Their names are Heffern and Turner and Warnham. And they're going to fish in a very, very perilous fishing spot called Down Rope off Headstone. And um, as they're coming back, they came across this semi-naked, bedraggled, long-bearded old gent. It's Barney Duffy. They're set to haul him back into the settlement and um, he turns on them. He, he's, his fate's certain, he's going to the gallows. So he turns on them and he curses them and he says, Take me alive, ye lily-livered lice, but mark me words before me body's hung a week on Kingstown gallows, ye shall suffer a similar fate. He goes to the gallows. Lo and behold, these three soldiers again go fishing at down rope and they are swept to their death by the rogue or seventh wave. It's only the body of Private Turner that is recovered and he's buried in a marked grave in the cemetery. Um, the, the bodies oh, yeah. of Private Heffernan and Warnham are never recovered and there is a headstone that marks their watery demise on a little grassy bluff 
out at Headstone. The no legend kidding me. of Barney Doffy. And that's you That's a great legend. I love the stories. There's no evidence to substantiate. I always call it historical facts. Yeah. These, these legends because they live long and they grow and they grow over time. And um, anyway, the, the, there has been research done. There were six Bernard Duffy's transported out to the colonies and uh, none of them quite match up to the time or the place. There is a um, on an old map um, a place marked um, Duffy's Gully and we used to, um, in the old days, there was an old pine tree that everyone called um, Barney Duffy's Pine. There's photos of it. Barney Duffy. Is, is that because it had a hollow in it? Yeah, you could stand inside it. You literally could go inside this, this tree and stand up inside it. It's funny because when I said I was going to come down, all the locals were like, got to ask about Barney Duffy. Yeah, yeah. And then this is, I've ridden a few down, there's the Bloody Bridge. Oh, yeah, we <laughs> can we tell you the story Bloody Bridge. You want to know the story? Oh, I love oh. these tales. <laughs> I, that's why I love this island. It's just it's so I, rich I, with history. We, we grew up with storytellers. The islanders are the best storytellers. There's short stories, tall stories, ghost stories, all sorts of stories. And the islanders love to pull your legs. So there's lots of funny stories as well. But I do love the the old legends so the legend of bloody bridge so legend has it that there was a very cruel overseer he was out in charge of a gang of convicts set to construction of the bridge they turned on him they murdered him they rolled his body up in the bridge when the replacement overseer came at noon he was told that the previous had gone bathing or fishing and had not returned the dastardly deed is discovered when the blood of the murdered overseer was found to be seeping through the wet mortar. Oh, <laughs> do you know how they would have killed him? It's a legend. There is no evidence to substantiate that historical And that's the, literally the bridge just down there. Mm -hmm. There was a very cruel, very vicious murder out there in May 1845. Yeah, it's, it's in um, Burial Ground Gully, Bloody Bridge. So the convicts here in this time... Or was it 1845? In the 1830s, 1840s. So this is when it was maximum security. It wasn't mm. like the first convicts, how you're saying, where it was like people that stole bread or whatever. This is like A the maximum. Them, that's right. They were sec like secondary the, offenders, um, double and treble offenders. They were old hands. They'd re-offended in the colonies. And it was a great British tradition to banish people to the ends of the empire, to the very last rock. In fact, Philip and Nepean Island, just off the south here, were also places of exile and banishment. Yeah, because it's funny, like me mm. being Australian, it's like a lot of what I've been told of our history was that, you know, our convicts, a lot of them were just good people at heart that like maybe stole some bread or that had they hard were. times. But then when you actually get into a lot of history, there's like some very Look, brutal... Um, we, we love to um, tell the legends of the lash. We love to tell the most brutal, um, most horrific tales. Um, there were there were many good convicts. Four out of four out of five prisoners, uh, transportees, committed property offences. So they never uh, committed bodily crimes. They never hurt anybody. But four out of five of them. Um, but those that lived long in our legend uh, and in our in historiography and our storytelling are the ones that. Um, the hard man. Be, yeah, they became brutalised. They were troublesome lads, and so. We're looking, if you look down towards the sea, we're looking at the police office where that old boat is, is um, standing. 
At 10 a.m. each morning, the prisoners were brought down on chain gang. If they'd committed offences, they were held in the jail. They brought down on chain gang to be brought before the bench of magistrates. And one of the prisoners, he was given uh, 25 lashes, which is a Botany Bay dozen. And he said to the magistrates, would they be so good to award half on his wooden leg? I don't think he got his wish. <laughs> uh, another prisoner was given, was awarded 50 lashes. And he said, that's not worth taking my jacket off for. So it was doubled. And he said that would suit. Wow, um, that's hard now. Yeah. Would, that when you're saying earlier, like 300 lashes, could it, could it, could you a die from offense. that? Um, ultimately the surgeon had, um, had, had say on, he could order a cease and desist if he felt that the prisoner couldn't take uh, the re- remainder of his sentence, uh, or if he swooned under the lash, then, um, if he, uh, lost consciousness yeah. under the lash, then, then, um, the surgeon could order the prisoner to be taken down off the triangle and either taken back to the jail or to the hospital. And then when he'd recovered sufficiently, he would go back to receive the remainder of his portion. And there's a very famous case, uh, William Castleton, and it's very well recorded. And uh, he uh, was a reasonably well-behaved prisoner. He had a um, reasonable record. And uh, he was an older prisoner. He was 58. And twice he presented suffering from dysentery at the civil hospital and he was turned away. Um, he again presented with another prisoner he had blood who'd seen blood running down his leg and he was he was ultimately charged with um, malingering the regulation penalties fifty lashes and when they put him to the triangle he swooned he was cut down and brought to the hospital where he died. Basically, the cry of murder goes up and a Reverend Atkins is on the magistrate's bench. He asked Major Anderson to have his name re- removed from the records because he understood that there'd been a travesty of justice. Major Anderson refused him that request. Wow. Um, so, so there were, were genuine cases of prisoners who deserved medical attention. I, 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 you know, his probably wasn't an isolated case. Um, everywhere you look, there's a story. This place is, is, is jammed full of stories like that across all settlement periods, across the Polynesian settlement period as well. We know we don't know so much about the Polynesians as we do about the prisoners. The British kept great records in comparison, and the Polynesians leave a, a you know fairly low carbon footprint. Mm. But there's still quite a lot of artifacts, and the the Polynesian law about uh, navigation and and settlement of the triangle is is pretty spot on. It's it's pretty good. What's that? So. Um, this island is part of the last migration through from Tahiti through the Cooks to settle Aotearoa, to settle New Zealand. And the first British settlers found the remains of Waka or Va'a, the voyaging canoes. Um, they found toki, which is an adze. Um, they found plantains planted in rows, and that requires human yeah. um, humans to transport that, that material. Um, when they did the excavation of the Polynesian settlement site, they found the remains of a marae, which is a sacred meeting place, whare, um, obsidian or tahua, which is volcanic glass. They traced that back to um, Raoul Island in the Kermadex in the north of New Zealand, and also um, in uh, Mare Island in the Bay of Plenty, which is called tahua in um, the Māori language. 
So yeah, it's a really fascinating, intriguing part of our early settlement story. Yeah. I, I don't think you can narrow the narrative and decide no. that that you know the the convict story should reign supreme, or that no. the Pitcairner story is is the story. It's 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 really important not to erase any of it because it's all so precious and yeah. fascinating. Who was Jackie Jackie? Uh, I don't know who Jackie Jackie. Jackie? Everyone keeps saying Jackie Jackie, Jackie. Jackie. Jackie Jackie was a real prisoner. Um, he was transported when he was sixteen uh, for bush bush rain. He was an outlaw. He just he was a, just a young lad that kind of got into trouble a little bit. He couldn't bear the psychological, like psycholo- like psychologically, incarceration was unbearable to him. So I don't think there's a prison a prison that was built that would um, contain him. He he was always absconding and seeking liberty. Anyway, he was he was sent out to Norfolk Island, and he was the main instigator in the cooking pot riot. So, Major uh, Commandant McConaughey had been withdrawn, and um, and he's so a lot of the privileges under the McConaughey system had also um, been removed from the. So the prisoners were a little agitated. They went on strike three times over substandard rations in 1846. And once they didn't receive a public holiday, they didn't receive Ash Wednesday, so they were up in arms about that. But then the authorities removed the prisoners' cooking pots and kettles and utensils. And when they went to breakfast the following day, so that was on the 1st of July, 1846, they discovered them gone and um, very uh, very agitated. They stormed into the barracks storeroom and retrieved their cooking pots and utensils and went to breakfast. Um, the guards, when they when the guards ordered them to work, they refused, and it was the flashpoint for a mutiny. They murdered the cookhouse overseer Stephen Smith. He's buried in the cemetery. Do you know how um, they killed him? Just um, whatever they could find. Um, William. So it was t- tools. Um, Jackie Jackie was armed with an axe, or, and at times they just used bludgeons of wood. They were in the lumber yard and and uh, the cookhouse. So the prisoners messed in the cookhouse and lumber yard. So it's whatever ready um, implements they had. It was it was not a, a necessarily a planned uprising like the eighteen thirty four uprising, which was the largest. Um, anyway, they um, they murdered they, they murdered Constable Morris, and um, they also murdered Constable Saxon and Dinan. They stormed up Bay Street, and when they got to the Lime Kiln Police Hut, one of those constables was uh, lying in his bed. He was axed with the bludgeon. Uh, the 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 butt of he was bludgeoned with the butt of Jackie Jackie's axe, and the other one stood up, sat up in his bed, and said, "I saw who done that." They were the last words he spoke. Um, so they rounded up, I think, about 200 prisoners as a result of that uprising. But the main ringleader and instigator was William Jackie Jackie Westwood. And on the 13th of October that year, 13 men go to the gallows. And uh, six days later, a thirteenth man. They're buried in an old first settlement saw pit in unhallowed ground. So wait, wait, what's the gallows? The Is gallows. it solitary? When you're saying before, oh no, I was sorry, like... the gallows are where prisoners are hung. <gasps> That's where so, they're hung. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they stand on a scaffold, and then the, yeah. it drops away, and and the, the drop, it's the they're launched into eternity. Yeah, yeah. That's with a rope, a noose. Anyway. Um, so they're interred in an old first settlement saw pit in unhallowed ground outside of the cemetery uh, in a place called Murderer's Mound. So that's 
That's what really happened to Jackie Jackie. But then there's the legend. Oh, so that's what really <laughs> oh, happened. That's what really happened. Um, they did a ground penetrating radar survey in 2014 across the mound. And they put 13 wooden stakes um, at the fence end of the mound. So it's highly likely that he's buried there. And they also did, they took a death mask um, of William Jackie Jackie Westwood. Oh, so that's so, him there. Yeah, he, he really existed. Yeah. Um, so Jackie Jackie, legend has it that he escapes, swims to Phillip Island, beats a boatload of soldiers in hot pursuit. He's an Olympic swimmer. He scales to the very highest peak, which is still known as Jackie Jackie today. As the soldiers are about to nab him, he jumps to his death. By virtue of that, he is eternally free. Now, many is the islander that's seen the ghost of Jackie Jackie coalescing in the late afternoon light. It could not have been. Really? Mm. That legend grows and grows and grows. I was, I was doing a tour one day and these people said to me, Oh, we went fishing, not telling you who we... We went fishing and the fella on the boat said, Jackie Jackie stole a, uh, stole a boat and he sold it to a passerby. And I thought, oh, I wonder who would just be happening to pass by <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere yeah. at the ends of the empire. Um, if you head straight north, it's certain death, it's no man's... So, so straight south, um, you're going to hit the polar caps... If you head north, um, Nouvelle Caledonie, uh, the French aren't there yet, so you know the French might not have given them up. Uh, it's a perfect penitentiary. It's, it's. I had the kindergarten kids out one day, and I said, if you took a boat and you rowed as far as you could past Phillip Island, where would you end up? One little tacker said, Santa's house. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, if you're a convict, you got a long boat away. You had to make sure you had enough um, manpower. You know, 12, 12, 14, 16 men at the oar. Um, you've got to have enough rations, enough water. Um, you've got to make sure you're not going to die of exposure or exhaustion. You have to have somebody who knows where they're going. These, these men um, are not well-travelled. They, they, they don't necessarily know where they are in the world. And then you've got to hope that your boatmates don't, don't start to look at you and think that you're delicious. So... How would, how would they first navigate to here, to find this island as a dot in the middle of nowhere? How would they? How did Captain Bly? How did the Tahitians? So the Bl how Bly did... didn't come. Bly sailed with Cook. Bly um, sailed with Cook when he was first here. Not he, no, I don't. Not here. Oh no, he, he never made it here because no, the mutiny he, he happened. Never. He actually signed off the signed the papers to close that earlier settlement down, but he never came here. Um, only two of the uh, New South Wales government, three of them, um, to my memory, came in that uh, that very early, like in the colonial period, and that was Governor, or he wasn't governor at the time, Captain Hunter, uh, when he lost the series, which was the flagship of the First Fleet. Um, governor Gipps made a su surprise visit to inspect the McConaughey system, and Governor Denison made um, a number of visits early on during the Pitcairner period. So the there were subsequent governors visit, but those those were the three um, really important people in our early colonial story. And that those first Tahitians that first came here. Mm, the, no, the Tahitians didn't. The last last of our foremothers died in 
1850. No, when there when there was that settlement that was found. Oh yes, here. so we're going back to the Polynesian. Yeah, sorry, settlement. I'm jumping right back to yeah. the Polynesian. I'm yeah. just wondering, how thousand did, years, just like one little yeah. jump, thousand yeah, years. Yeah, quick little jump back. <laughs> how did they navigate to here? The Polynesians were extraordinary navigators. Did they do it by um, the stars? Very, very sophisticated. No, by a multitude of um, different signs. Um, so, so the uh, the currents, the air, the air and ocean currents. Um, right now, those lovely warm currents are coming down from the north. They're very nutrient rich, and behind them are the bait fish and the pelagic fish, the pelagic birds and the pelagic um, fish. Uh, they use the stars. Um, they were the they were the prime navigators at night. Um, the sun, um, the clouds. So uh, whenever they're near land, the cloud formations uh, flatten out. It's called ornithographic cloud. It was over Phillip Island a couple of days ago. Um, they used the birds. So when the birds, so they used the, the migratory birds like the shining bronze cuckoo. Um, they also, when they were close to land, they, they would begin to see land birds. They would follow the migrations of the whales and the turtles as well. They would leave at a certain time of the year when they knew that the prevailing conditions were running in a certain direction and they would leave from the exact same spot. They had shell maps, they had mine maps, but the Polynesian navigators went to navigation, so they're very um, high, they were, they were high in the, in the, in the hierarchy. Um, they would go to navigation school for nine, uh, sorry, for seven years learning their craft and their trade and they often came from schools of navigators wow. and you've got to remember that some of those early early uh, va'a or waka or voyaging canoes did not return it's only those that return that bring um, the knowledge, knowledge. Mm, so there is a little bit of a theory that some of the Polynesian men um, on board the bounty and I, I would subscribe to this too that they had um, knowledge so Cook took Tupaya um, with him and Tupaya um, left a map of the Pacific. So on his map, um, Pitcairn Island is Hitiaurevareva. This island and Lord Howe have Polynesian names. Wow, so they mm. had travelled all the way, even down to Lord Howe. They didn't necessarily mean to travel yeah. So the the paleoclimatologists they, they they meant to leave, yeah. But they didn't necessarily mean to arrive here. In in my view, the climo uh, the climopaleontologists I think that's what they're called. They have remodeled the prevailing conditions at that time. So they say that the prevailing conditions were in reverse at the time. So they could definitely come out but they could not necessarily return. So you understand as a yeah. sail sailor, yeah. you're, you're at the mercy of the wind under sail. And, and every, right through the age of sail, everyone was in the, at the mercy of the wind. Those, um, it, it kind of is kind not to teach a sailor to swim because if you're in the middle of a tempest hammering down, man overboard, you can't come back to pick him up. Yeah. So if you let him sink like a lump of lead, perhaps that's m most merciful. The other thing that I've found really interesting, so there's been some, in recent years, ex uh, volcanic explosions in the Kermadec. So we're umbilically connected to New Zealand. We're the highest point of the Norfolk Ridge, which is this massive sub-oceanic mountain range that runs um, all the way up to the New Caledonian Basin. 
when those those um, volcanic eruptions were occurring in the Kermadex, our beaches were a couple of foot uh, thick with pumice from from that eruption. Um, so they would and could have come to this island on drift voyages at at the time of, at the same time of year that the pumice was drifting here. You're kidding. Yeah, there's there's um there's it, it just we just need to look at the Polynesian story with Polynesian eyes. Mm-hmm. We are a, a gold level dark sky community here, so you can see fifth order stars with the naked eye, and the navigational stars are. Um, a first order. So this about I think there's 71 navigational stars. Matariki is um, is blessing us in the sky at the moment, and um, Matariki is little eyes, and that's um, when Matariki rises. It rises in winter. It's the new year. In Ma- it's the Maori New Year, so it's the time to plant. It's the, wow. it's, the it's the it's the new season. It's the birth or uh, rebirth, and yeah, it's a beautiful little constellation. It's um, Pallades. Wow, the seven you know so much. It's oh, amazing. I'm full you, of useless information. Do you reckon the Polynesians <laughs> ever made it to Australia on these trips? Yes, yes. Um, they have found evidence. Um, I can't remember the place where they they found evidence. Have a look. They've found, and I, I have a, a very bizarre theory about. So the Polynesians didn't appear out of nowhere. Like islands just don't disappear. Um, they get renamed and reimagined. Yeah. So when you look at, so the the Australian Aboriginals, they have names for everything and every place, and a story for everything and every reason and every season. And the people that lived here before we got here did the same. And we've laid down our stories and our toponyms, our place names. And it it's it, it there's a high level of contextualising. That people do when they've lived in a in in a single place for a long time, and that's why you you can see old men sitting on verandas, grunting, and they've actually just um, imparted a whole encyclopedia to one another because they don't need to talk very much because they know so much yeah. about one another and and where they've lived and what they've done and what previous generations have done. That's why stories are so important. Yeah. You lose your stories, you lose your culture, you lose your language. You lose that continuum. Okay, I've done it to the listeners again. We had to pause, and then you and I got in our own conversation <laughs> for about half an hour. Absolutely so interesting, this place. But now we've moved. We've moved locations to another part for the story of the ring. <laughs> I don't know, or the ring. Oh, you said something about a ring. The ring was a gang of incorrigibles and old laggards and whenever the ring held sway here in the cookhouse and lumberyard, no man's life was safe. It didn't matter whether he was fettered or free. So there was about 30 to 60 of them. And because they were, uh, like every every jail today has a gang, has a, has a um, the underdogs and the top dogs. The top dogs are, are, are always the rulers in any jail and there's a code. There's yeah. a code um, that, that belongs to the brotherhood. And it's only when you're indoctrinated and initiated that you know what what happens um, when the ring is in charge of the lumber yard. That old saw pit over there, the top dogs were the senior soys and the underdogs worked at the bottom of the pit saw and ingested sawdust and developed iron chest complaints. So you understand about the hierarchy that goes on 
And so was the top dogs the hardest men? They're the hardest men. They're the um, the stone makers, the, the brick makers, the pebbles, um, the steel men of the, the prison. They were the most incorrigible, most troublesome lads the settlement had. And to, to be the hardest men, was that by not taking was, crap off anyone? It was like a badge just... of honour. So they smoked in open defiance of the prison, of the authorities here in the lumberyard and also down at the crank mill. Um, they sold fresh meat at a penny a pound. Um, so I'll leave it to your imagination where any pres- prisoner got fresh meat or a pretty penny. Um, they they ruled with an iron fist. Wow. And that's part of the reason why the the um, cooking pot riot broke out is there was a level, increasing level of defiance and um, insolence and insubordination. It, it, it almost bordered on anarchy by mid-1846. Wow, so it was complete rebel. So when you say, like, even the guards themselves would be, would be fearful of the lumberyard. Yeah, so when Robert... Oh, that's a That's okay, the phone rang. So... I think we're up to that. Even the even the guards were scared in the ring. Even the guards were scared in the lumber yard here because of the gang. That's right. So um, Robert Pringle Stewart, who was a magistrate that visited in 1846, <coughs> and he reco- he um, did record how the authorities were were frightened um, to to attend the the, the lumber yard, and um, ultimately the ex police runner and. Um, Cookhouse overseer Stephen Smith was murdered here in the in the um, uh, cookhouse and lumberyard, and uh, uh, there was a a murder in which um, Stephen Brennan uh, attacked Patrick Lynch with his uh, shoemaker's hammer and knife, and murdered him along the beachfront here. Lynch was a notorious Botany Bay uh, Molly or a colonial woman, and. Um, there was an altercation here and it occurred on a Sunday and Brennan said in evidence that he did not pursue the difference that he had with um, Patrick on Sunday because it was a day of religion. But on Monday he set to sort it out and um, he, he, um, he, he did a thorough job and he went to the gallows in Sydney um, in 1842 um, it was a pretty brutal murder, and uh, Lynch is buried in the cemetery. Wow! Mm. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty dark and turbulent history. There was also a lot of black marketeering going on, and it went on. Uh, in, it goes on in all jails in America today. They uh, food trade items are called commissary. Um, they, they traded, uh, so the, the, the standard ration in 1846 was a pound of salt meat and a pound and a half of cornmeal. The salt meat, the gentleman convict John Mortlock, he called it, uh, he said Flintstones boiled over so long do not make good soup. Um, so it was neither nutritious or flavoursome and probably not particularly good for you. Um, and the the um, cornmeal, they, they used the cornmeal for omni grits, for, for a kind of porridge for breakfast. But they also baked a kind of cornbread and they also baked the, the kernels and made what they called scotch coffee. So they roasted it on, on a shovel over coals and made what they called scotch coffee. So they, they did as best they could with what they had. 
Um, Did that give them enough energy to do this hard well, labour? Well, no, or so there's they? a lot of black, black market trading as well, and that's, that's, that's the problem. You know, there weren't many fat convicts, and a lot of them wasted away. Dysentery was a really big problem here. Um, so when they when they were trading, they tr- they um, if you if you're a skilled prisoner, um, if you're a gifted platter or a, or a tailor or a um, bootmaker, um, you had a skill that you could trade. If you were a um, a wood carver, you could carve curios like candlesticks for the officers. Um, if you were a gifted platter, you could make good hats. There were no shops. There were a, a few shops eventually. Um, so the jailer's wife, Mrs Shields, for example, she had a shop um, because there was a, a great shortage of things like sewing notions and lace and things for the for the women in the settlement. So eventually they did, ha- the, the um, officers were permitted to bring wives and families here. But the prisoners tra- traded food, food items were a very valuable commodity, uh, tobacco. So they prohibited tobacco under commandants like John Price. And they had a very invasive search. It was known as the tobacco track. And they forced the prisoner's mouth open to look for the telltale track of tobacco at the back of the mouth. And sometimes they knocked prisoners' teeth out in the process of that. It was quite a brutal, brutal invasive um, search. How would the prisoners sleep? Uh, they slept in hammocks in the prisoner barracks. So the, the largest ward housed... So um, the maximum um, population inside the barrack... Um, in the 1840s was um, uh, around 2,000 prisoners. Wow. Um, it was designed... No, sorry, it was 1,400. It was designed for 1,000 prisoners. And they were in wards. They weren't locked... Um, they weren't shackled or fettered inside the wards. The wards were locked. And there could be up to 120 prisoners in the wards. They had separate wards for overseers and also a separate boys' ward as well. The youngest prisoner ever transported, he was eight and a half. His name was John Hudson. He was on the Sirius. And he got 50 lashes for being outside of his tent after curfew. Do you reckon that the British Empire trying to expand and imprisoning their own, like, do you reckon in a way they were just, like, making their own their own men slaves and imprisoning them so easily just to build their empire? Absolutely. The Select Committee on Transportation, when they um, published their report in 1838, they did acknowledge that it was another form of slavery. In fact, recently, um, in recent years, Britain has re-enacted modern slavery laws (coughs) and I think Australia is going to follow suit. (sighs) The human condition never changes. Yeah, because this this house up here, number 10, on Mm. Quality Row, we're looking at the stones out the front of how they've been built. And the lady mm. was telling us it's cut from the reef here, the coral. Yeah, it's, it's, um, oh, this is old fossilised reef. We're actually sitting on the old seafloor. And um, that is uh, the, the foothills in front of us. Or is it actually the old foreshore. So um, when you have a look at this stone um, under a microscope, you can see the, um, the, the animals and, and the coral that once, once lived and formed the, the reef, the living reef. Wow, so yeah. how would they cut it? Would they um, literally, would the prisoners literally be in like so knee-deep water just cutting reef? Martin Cash, the bush ranger. So Reverend Rogers wrote they worked up to their waist. Martin Cash in chains. Martin Cash, the bush ranger and prisoner, he was here for 10 years. He wrote that they worked up to their armpits. Oh, so until the tide reached their armpits. 
And um, the, the, the most dreaded of the hard labour assignments was work on the reef, was cutting the stone. It's, it's a pretty punishing environment to work in, summer or winter. You know, our UV um, rating is 14, 15 at the moment. So, you know, sunburn, you know that. Yeah, we've been surfing and, and getting. <laughs> it's punishing. Yeah. And then in winter, these, our prevailing conditions are southeasterly and it's bone cold. It's like whistling off the Antarctica. So it was, it was, it was never designed. This was a comfortless place. The Society for the Improvement of Prison Discipline, uh, they issued their report, I think it was in 1828-29. And Reverend Sidney Smith is a member of this um, Society of Improvement of Prison Discipline. And, um, you know, they, they write that these places should be comfortless places, places of hard, irksome, incessant labour, coarse cloth and wailing. Um, in his own musings, he, he said that, you know, we should stop at um, amputation of limbs because it might induce sympathy in the general populace. Wow. So, you know, so it's like they just, like, lost their heart in a way to, for their... They were so far... such a divide so between... So far removed from it. Um, they never... A lot of these men never visited the island. And, you know, he says in another breath, he was quite a prolific writer... I said, I'm so glad I was born in a time when there was tea. Where would we be without tea? <laughs> Meanwhile, they don't cut their legs off. They don't want sympathy. I don't understand how they would cut the reef. Would they be diving underwater with a saw? Uh, no, so it's, it's, they... it's, the, it's, a, it's the stone along the foreshore. So the living reef yeah. um, is the two outer reefs along Slaughter Bay here. Yeah. Um, but the old fossilised reef is in on the foreshore. So they'll. So to cut. So there's two kinds of stone that they cut here. The rubble rock, which um, comes uh, is is um, there was a big uh, ridge of it which ran from the civil hospital all the way up to Chimney Hill, and the rubble rock goes to make building fill um, for road construction to make the macadamised roads. All of that kind of stuff. Also for lime burning. So in the in the lime pit, they put the the rubble rock, um, white oak, which burns lovely and clean, Norfolk pine knot, and those those lime burners. They had to get that kiln up to nine hundred degrees Celsius for an effective burn. They're very skilled men. But the massive blocks of calcarenite. So they're the ones that go go to make the um, the beautiful big blocks of dressed uh, finished stone. Um, had to be taken from the the water line um, when in in the in the wet quarries. So there were wet and dry quarries. So the in the wet quarries, those those massive blocks of stone, um, they're wet cut and they um, they go to make the seals, the lintels, the thresholds, um, the coins on the ends of the compounds. All of those, um, the voiceurs in the in the arches and the keystones as well. Um, they all, that's all massive calcarenite. Wow. And when you actually look along it, it's they're so straight. All the walls and everything. It's yes. like um it's Georgian architecture and, and it's it's very a asymmetrical, um a very symmetrical, sorry, very um aesthetically pleasing, but militarily executed. So very elegant, you know, lovely clean lines. Because if you didn't, you'd die. The, the, yeah, the, also the Royal Engineers were a, an extraordinary regiment of men because they planned and designed an empire. They really were um, incredibly intelligent, um, highly adaptive. 
um, multi-skilled engineers. You know, today an engineer will specialise. Yeah. These men worked with limited resources, using new materials or working out how to use the materials that were were present. So they worked in India. They worked in uh, in in a colonial Australia. Um, they came out here. Um, the reason why we have verandas around the buildings here, the, it's it's like the Indian bungalow style. Yeah. Um, to have the verandas help to cool, um, cool the house. So mm. how did Norfolk Island, being this prisoner, this prison colony, being this everything that we're seeing here, how did it go from this to being the home of the mutineer? Descendants. Descendants. In the early 1850s, the Pitcairn Island had become overpopulated, overcrowded, and they were suffering from a very severe drought. And the then leader of the community, George Hunt Nobbs, had gone to England to be ordained as the first minister of religion. When he returned to Pitcairn, uh, he found them in a, in, a, in a very poorly state, and he began to look around for a new home. They looked all over the world. Um, they looked to going to the Cooks. They looked at um, going to Hawaii. They'd been offered land in Hawaii. They looked at going back to Tahiti. Um, they had attempted a return in 1831, and it was catastrophic. So it wasn't really a. Why, um, why was it catastrophic? Um, they quite welcomed? a number. No, um, Spanish fever um, decimated them. Um, it, also, the the moral fabric of the Tahitian society had changed. By this time, they were very pious. And uh, so they were rather appalled at that. But 60% of the Pitcannon population died in Tahiti. Um, we have, uh, including some of the foremothers, so they're buried in a, under a um, school um, car park in Tahiti. That's just time and, you know, yeah. a, a change in value systems. Anyway, so so they look around for a home. Um, this settlement is um, a dish, is is soon to be abandoned as a penal settlement. I think it suited Governor Dennison. He was looking to um, send married, uh, retired soldiers and their families here. Why why was it um, becoming obsolete? This island as a prison settlement. Um, increasingly, uh, the, its reputation um, was was getting back to England and also through the colonies. And there's a lot of pressure. The, the men of the cloth, um, particularly people like um, Thomas Bagley Naylor and uh, Father Ullathorne made... Uh, Bagley Naylor wrote a letter, a very con- highly condemnatory letter, uh, to the home authorities about the conditions here. He laboured long on the incidents of the odious or unnatural crime. But Father Ullathorne um, made a personal mission um, to England and he met with William Molesworth. So it, it just was, it was time to, to close the settlement down. They, they um, relocated most of the prisoners down to Port Arthur. And so the new model prison at Port Arthur was, was built to rehouse the prisoners. They were moving on from here. And Dr Gaunt in Tasmania, um, he, was a, he was appalled. He said, you know, you can't send the Norfolk Island prisoners down to Tasmania um, because there were like 40,000 children in Tasmania as if every prisoner was a pedophile yeah. there was just this it, it just it had a reputation which terrified people but this it really, is where the worst of the worst were yeah so but by the end of 1846 so the order to close the settlement came in 1847 
But by 1846, um, you know, there was an increasing... Um, the number of lashes was increasing exponentially. Um, the authorities had less and less control. There'd been... A, um, the bloodiest of those uprisings was the cooking pot riot. And um, it just it, it just was... It, it had served its purpose. So the Pitcanners are looking for a new home. It's convenient for Governor Denison to offer them Norfolk Island... They'd asked for distinct and separate settlement. They wanted to come to a place where they could live as a community. And I do sincerely believe that the Pitcanners thought that Queen Victoria had given them the island, despite the fact that there is a letter from B.T. Nicholas in Raitea in Tahiti um, in 1854 explaining that the island could not be ceded to the Pitcanners. It's it, it's a very a very sincere belief. We all grew up with it, wow. and, um, and from there on in, it becomes a very uneasy relationship, and still remains an uneasy relationship. But we've always been very grateful to have um, been given the island as a home. We know we don't know any other home now, and this is where our our stories are laid down, and um, it's where our families are buried. Yeah, it's home. So why why the miscommunication? Like so. Well, I don't know. Governor Denison did say it was an experiment. So uh, it was like, okay, you guys go here for now, and then see what happens. I think Governor Denison. um, uh, There's a couple of letters that went missing. The Fremantle Captain Fremantle's letter was rediscovered and talks about distinct and separate settlement and um, the Denison letter has never been recovered. I think that Denison and Fremantle and Gregory also believed that the Pitcanners were going to have exclusive and distinct settlement rights um, but that it's somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone said, "Well, we can't do that. That's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it belongs to the empire." And so, as as the situation changed in in Australia, we came variously. Uh, we we were under Van Diemen's Land when it was a penal settlement. Then we came under New South Wales, and um, currently we're very much under the eye, a watchful eye of the Commonwealth. Right. Mm. It's it's a it's been an uneasy period in mm. our history. It's been a very troubling period. I, I know that um, talking to the to the locals here, and I know you don't want to get into politics, so we we won't. But I, I know that talking to the locals here, there's definitely been pros and cons about Australia coming in and mm. and the New South. And the, the the biggest thing was that, as you said, like your families are here and they're all buried here, and like. You guys all had land here, and, and some of the families with like hundreds of acres to themselves, mm. and then oh, suddenly a, le- a land tax coming in. Yeah, that, that is definitely a, a challenging been, burden when the land yeah. doesn't. Land for us is custodial. Yeah, and we're bound to pass it on um, to each generation. It's not traditionally anything that we capitalise on. Um, yeah. you don't your land is is your ability to sustain yourself into the future. Like the seas, it provides food, the land and, and water, yeah. um, and it's finite. And the culture finite. here, I have to say, what, what would you, how would you describe the culture on this island? Because how I'd describe it would just be easy living. 
disease. Well, like as in like it's just it's like for everyone's just. The so, hospitality's been so, insane. So, so culture is, and, and this is what happened in Tahiti, and, and I don't think that the English sailors understood that. Our culture is Polynesian, so our families are extended. Um, that that's uh, so we must yeah. look after everybody, the elderly and the and the young, um, until the day we aren't here. Um, any child can get in trouble for, from any elder for anything. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but but we're, our culture is reciprocal. It's not barter. So um, you must always give of your best um, and give often and generously. And um, you must also balance um, balance the books. Yeah. Do you know? So in constantly giving, you're constantly receiving. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's cultural. It's cultural. So well, it's in tribalism. The, um, yeah, it's yeah. just the way you do things. And yeah. everywhere you go, you've got to work out how things are done, yeah, and and what the value systems are, and and so bring a plate in Australia. So many people literally bring a plate, yeah, because they don't understand the cultural nuances that exist. You can you can get yourself in all sorts of trouble here if you don't understand that. Yeah, I can't. I I just can't get over the sense of community here and just how, how much we've been taken in and looked after staying with the O'Connors. They just literally They're open legends. their home. They're legends. No, but just the, everyone just opens their home. But just yeah. I just love how like you'd be hanging out there and then next thing, you know, some kids from down the road are now suddenly hanging out and you're looking after them for the afternoon yeah, and then they exactly. go somewhere and everyone's... Yeah, and then yeah. all the kids pile in and pile up and, you know, sleepovers are like 10 kids at a time and yeah. it's wonderful. It's the most amazing place yeah. to, to raise a family and we're camping. We're camping right now down under the pines and how big Al and, and Bok have set up the, the camping site it's just yeah. absolutely insane and then all the kids come down and camp and then that's what i was saying we had the, yeah. the funnest night the other night taking them on a ghost hunt <laughs> and we absolutely i actually felt kind of bad about that the next day because little kids no because the next mm-hmm. day um it was all fine we had so much fun we took them out and like pretended to do a seance and i, I had a, what i did because all the kids wanted to go ghost hunting so i got a stick and i put it down my pants like down the side of like my shirt, I hid it under my shirt. We went out into the field and because all the adults, all the big Alan Bock all said like, you know, to be a grunt, you got to walk across the cemetery and back. And that's this is what they that. told all the little kids. So oh we're like, all right, we'll God. take you across the cemetery. And they would only get about 20 meters from camp. I'm like, all right, we'll call the spirits in here. So we all held hands and then we did this mock call the spirits in. And then as we did, Jay's son, Zach, oh no, no, it was... Um, Mason. I mean, no, it wasn't Mason. Mm. I mean, Zach's son, is it Charlie? Charlie Finn. Yeah, yeah, Charlie turns the light on. I was like, no, don't turn the light on. The spirits will You're come in. So he freaked light. out. And as he turns the light off, I threw the stick in the tree. <laughs> and next thing, all the kids just start screaming. And I've never, they just ran. They would have jumped to They were wailing and crying. And anyway, they, they were all cool. And we we're all laughing. Oh, and then the next day, I ran we, into Zach. And he, re- and he reckoned Charlie wouldn't go to sleep that, the <laughs> oh. next night. It's because we're all true believers. But because that was um, that was another thing that I got I got told here about the history of, that this is one of the most haunted mm. places in the world. In the world, it is. It's the fourth most haunted island in the world. You can Google that. Sometimes we come and it's number four. Sometimes number seven. 
Um, Richard Davies wrote Ghost Guide to Australia and he said there were more ghosts per, per hectare here than any place in Australia. Yeah, it's... it's. Um, Why would ghosts be more... Is that because of the, the brutality? Because isn't, isn't ghosts everywhere. where, like, where they have to, like, let go to pass to to move to the next mm, world. They haven't, and they there's unfinished business. They haven't finished telling their story. They feel the need to tell their story constantly. Um, the ghosts are everywhere here. Um, they come from all of the settlement periods. And so many of the islanders have stories and many of the old island homes have stories. Um, one lady said to me it's because there's no portal, so there's no departure point from which the spirits of the dead can leave us. An island man said it's because the Pitcanners took so much of the stone out of the old convict settlement, they took the spirits with them. And a lady said to me that um, it's because so many of the burial sites have been disturbed. And she's quite right about that too. I can't really explain it. I just know that it's a constant and um, it is across all generations as well. I know some very, very young children that tell me stories, share their stories with me all the time. Well, when we stayed on Phillip Island, actually, um, two nights ago, one of the young, I won't, won't say her name, but one of the young girls from here was telling me, especially when she was young, she was like all the spirits that she'd see all the time, mm. you know, and all the ghosts that was here, and she had some phenomenal stories. Yep. What about you yourself? Have you? Mm. Uh, well, I... Um, we grew up with stories and I loved them and I actually thought they were just stories until I was in my 20s I was driving um, I was going to work I used to work in the old military barracks on the top floor and I'd left some journals at work and I thought oh I don't want to go up that old old flight of stairs in the dark by myself I'm really good at putting things off so I took the long scenic route which is Rudy Hill Road a gorgeous drive into Kingston and I just got on this corner and this old lady sat next to me in my car. I thought, I'm not telling anyone about this. My mother um, was very was mentally unwell, and so you could understand. But six yeah. weeks later, I'm talking to the curator of deceased estates, lovely man. And I said to him, David, you may think I'm nuts, but an old lady sat next to me my, up, uh, in my car. He said, I know who that is. And he took me to the court register and he showed me what had happened to that woman. Turns out I'm not that that special. So many people have seen her on that corner and uh, what happened to her is a horrific. I didn't know who she was. I was reading a book by Harry Shapiro, who's an anthropologist, you know, people that study people. Yeah. He'd come to take comparative data. Mostly he wanted to see whether through interbreeding we'd all develop three heads. I just yeah. leave two heads at home in my cupboard. Yeah, that's another question I was going to ask, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, oh, we, could, we could get to that one a little later. Anyway, um, he, he, he took this, all his data and um, the lady that sat, sat next to me in my car was one of his subjects and he described perfectly the lady that sat next to me in my car. Then I'm reading Rob Varman's book on our family tree and that lady was our great aunt. She was our grandfather's sister and uh, her death was horrific and the circumstances around her death were horrific. It's an absolute constant. I've seen people um, that I didn't know were dead. Mostly I know who they are. I don't see them all the time. It's not always a blessing. Um, some people see dead people constantly. Yeah. That's what this young girl was saying to me the other night, mm. that like she just yeah. sees them constantly and 
and it's she said sometimes it's a burden it is yeah um and you know what it's just not the islanders the visitors come to the island and i do two ghost tours a week at least and they constantly have things happening or they're constantly sharing their stories with me uh, and the duplex is is a very very active place what's the duplex uh, it's a superintendent of convicts duplex and um whatever happened there in the colonial period has impacted on every single family or person that's ever lived in there. That place has memory. Um, so it's kind of fitting that it remain a ruin. It's in, it's in complete ruin. So that's so it had a bad om- omen? I'm not really sure. Um, Are you allowed um, to say what, what happened? Um, probably... I've, no, I probably wouldn't. On I probably wouldn't. Yeah. Can I, I just tell you what? Let's say we'll pause it for a second. Stories. Okay, we're on pause. So just to give the listener, a, so we we're just talking about um, some ghost stories and and out of respect for the dead and and, and superstition and and respect, we've we didn't go on with those stories yet. We've decided we can we can talk about what's happened and you've relocated us. Rachel to a place that I'm actually finding it hard to talk which is the most haunted part of the the island where you do ghost tours to and we've walked in and as soon as I've walked out the back here and I said to you I don't know if it's that you put it in my head telling me this place is haunted but as soon as I walked in that back room and even sitting here now it's like there's like a magnet on my heart there's this um vibrational energy and it's I don't know how to <laughs> describe What's happening? Where where are we now? We're at the duplex that we're you were just talking about. We've just relocated to the duplex, and this is where strange things happen. And you just said before on your tours, doing ghost tours here, twenty four times you've had to leave, and nineteen times you haven't even come in. Hmm. So twenty four times, and I said, why did you have to leave? And you said because things have started happening to people, and you've had to leave, and you, and so. What what things would happen to people inside the duplex? Um, yeah, it's it's a constant, it's an absolute constant. It was a revelation to me. So about a one in two, one in three chance that someone will have an experience. There's nothing. I don't do anything because I don't believe in courting. I don't believe in stirring it up. I'm interested in uh, what people might see, hear, feel, um, or what they know. And these are complete strangers that are coming to the island. Um, it, it won't matter which side of the duplex, whether it's number two or number three, people will have experiences. It's different on every night almost. Sometimes there's a complete absence of presence and other nights this place is absolutely pinging. Which, yeah, and, and you said that <laughs> Pinging word. at the moment. I'm feeling a bit nauseous. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm feeling extremely nervous. And, and just those creaks and, and different, yeah. And this door here not being open, it's mm. just like, it's just weird energy. It but what weird. would happen to some people, like, sometimes? So one of my earliest tours, a lady stepped down into the courtyard at number two and she said, what did they do to people here? And I said, I'm not certain. I have a sense of what happened. She said they should demolish the building. And she was absolutely adamant they demolished the building. Another one of my earlier tours, a lady stepped into the courtyard, uh, sorry, into the servants' quarters, and she said uh, they said it's full of bones, and that absolutely floored me. Um, it's now 
nine or ten times where that's happened. There was a very psychic lady one night and she said, didn't you see me stepping over all the little bones? I thought everyone could see the little bones and um, clearly not everyone could see what she could see. Have, have they done any excavation or any like to look what's under here? Um, no, I, I, th- this is just um, the folklore and the things that have happened to people over time. I would, wouldn't like to think that they would disturb the past. Yeah. Because um, I do believe you can disturb the spirits in such a way that they they never rest. <laughs> Terribly superstitious. Yeah. Did you tell me that someone was slapped? Oh, yes, a man on his honeymoon, wasn't it, wasn't his um, new wife. <laughs> he was on his honeymoon. I don't know what people are doing going on ghosts on their honeymoon. Anyway, um, as he was leaving the, this little room here, in the, it's actually the kitchen and it's, this is a complete ruin, um, he was sort of um, holding his jaw and he, was in, he looked like he was in pain. I said to him, are you okay? He said, I'm all right, but whilst I was sitting there, someone's come and slogged me twice really hard in the side of the head and my head's absolutely ringing. I didn't know what to say to him. I said, oh, maybe your wife might like to give you an all-over massage because <laughs> I think that's what happened. Oh, you know, dumb things you say. Anyway, he tracked me down at the end of his honeymoon week. I was getting petrol in town. He said, you know, for two days after that, my head was absolutely ringing. And so, like, and so the, the theory is considering no one else could have hit him at I was standing right next to him. There was nobody hitting him. Another time we did a tour and I remember where the lady stood. And the next day um, the general manager of one of the tour companies came up to where I was at my godmother's house and <laughs> he said, Rachel, I think you need to come down to the office. There's been a lady on your tour and she's been talking in tongues. I thought, oh my God. I don't know what to do about that. Um, it's not in my instruction manual. In fact, I don't even have an instruction manual. Anyway, oh, I got um, um, I got flowers and I got shells, and because that seemed like the most appropriate thing to get. And we drank buckets of tea. She was that scared that she would take somebody back home with her. And I've had people come back two years later. It really is no laughing matter in many respects. They come back a couple of years later and they would come back on tour or come back to the island to tell me that they'd taken someone home with them. This mother and daughter came back and they said, oh, we took a man back to our unit when we were here last time. We told him to go away. We couldn't help him. I thought that was really mean. Yeah, we'd stand at the cemetery and a man would see um, a little boy in the mid-distance with scars around his ankles one one night a man said someone's been pulling my leg. He meant like literally pulling his leg. Um, some of the things that have happened here in the duplex, one night I looked up, there was a 19-year-old girl, she was crying. And, you know, it's never the idea of it. It happens reasonably regularly. Anyway, I asked her if she was okay. She said she was fine. Ten minutes later, she's still crying. And I said, I said eventually I said, you know, do you need to leave? She said, I think I have to. Anyway, we went back down to the bus and uh, the look on her face was distraught. So I said, you know, are you okay? And would you like to share with us what what was happening? She said, whilst I was sitting there, someone was stroking me on the side of the neck and kissing me on the side of the neck. I felt really awful for her. It's happened more than once now. Um, I said, which side? I figured I knew which side because I'd had 
about 10 other people all of a sudden get very strong neck pain up and down the left side of the neck and I checked with them when we'd moved down to the pier and still this strong neck pain caused you said the left side wow mm. I think the weirdest the weirdest like right now and since we've walked in it's just you just have this feeling we're sitting here in the courtyard and you just have this feeling that you're being watched mm. you know it's like I always find that so weird. It's, you know, what your intuition picks up. That's it's right. like when you know someone's watching you and you, when you're asleep and you're like, yeah. someone's there and you wake up and someone's standing over you. You know what I mean? Blokes call it gut instinct. Women call it intuition, but it's the same thing. That's the, that extra sense of something is what keeps you safe in the world. It protects you. As soon as we walked yeah. out this door just here, I couldn't take my eyes off that room in there. Mm. And that was like, you know, like when you're like, there's something in there. Can we do a little test? I don't want to do a test. No, 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 we're not going to. Is it, is it masculine or feminine? That was that was masculine. Yeah. You're good. Why? You're good. That's intuition. Right. Is, uh, tell me about that energy in there. In in this room here, when I first stood in. Yeah, I know. And that floor creaked. Yeah. But that was because I could just, there was just this, there was something in there. Yeah. There was Lo just so of, much energy. Lots of bo blokes go into that little, I've got goosebumps all up and down my legs. <laughs> lots of blokes go into that room and say stuff like that. Yeah. I've had quite a few. Um, Did you see me freak when that, when that, um, when I stood on the, on the floor and it yeah, creaked? Yeah, it gave way a little bit. Yeah. But, I mean, that, that's sort of the physicality of it, isn't it? But yeah. there's a, there's a. An extra sense of something. It, it never actually leaves this building. It never leaves this building night or day. People have come back. Oh, one of the things that threw me recently, I was just standing there. I've never been um, manhandled before in, in that sense. And and um, the man grabbed my this uh, this arm and wrenched it. <laughs> oh. We've had to move every all the furniture out and finish the story here in the stories here in the courtyard because of what's going on. Um, there was a fifteen. I was about fifteen year old boy um sitting up in the um kitchen in where we tell the stories one night, and he pulled his hoodie over his head. And I, sometimes seemed to know when people aren't travelling well. And I said to him, um, "Are you okay?" And he looked at me. His eyes were as big as saucers, and he was pale as a sheet. And three times I asked him are you okay? And he just, <laughs> so I said, look, I think we're going to leave. Anyway, we got back down to the bus and um, I was just having a little chat with him. He said, um, whilst I was up there, someone was trying to strangle me. So I looked at my notes because I keep a journal. It was always really, really interesting. And there were three other times, oh, there's actually four other times now where people felt like they were being strangled. That's a very strong reaction. Yeah. It's really not nice. People being pushed and all that sort of stuff. And that's, you know, I, sometimes it's the, it's the hubby. <laughs> what? Yeah, trying to scare <laughs> yeah. them. Why do you know, oh, without going into the, the, detail. the, into the detail of, of, of the, the people that were here and what happened mm. to them, do you know why these people don't move on? these spirits um well i think it was it's to do with what happened in the the colonial period um all you learn about these these types of settlements um they're very very brutal their history is very hard and dark and heavy hurt people hurt people and there's this there's this vicious cycle but what what happened here during the the um convict colonial period 
impacted on every single person that lived in this house. Um, Lucy and Driver Christian's family, they had 13 children. Three three tragedies involving children um, happened to that family. As you started this sentence, before you even started this story, I just had this flush come over me of like wanting to like of extreme um of extreme emotion of wanting to bore my eyes out yeah and you I, didn't even hadn't even started this story and i don't even know if it relates to this story it's just suddenly i just suddenly had this extreme <laughs> this is real <laughs> weird so, yeah. yeah okay continue um, yeah it's it's tough it's tough it's people's lives um on this side The last person to live in this side moved out in the 1930s. She felt the house cursed her. She lost um, uh, her son, um, was drowned in a whaling accident. They nicked a whale boat, went fishing. The boys in the boat disappeared. They were never seen again. There was an inquest into their disappearance. Uh, The one boy that didn't go because he was sick subsequently drowned. So um, uh, all those boys drowned. Um, There's a backstory to that as well. Then she lost um, her husband, the remainder of her children, to tuberculosis. And she moved out of this house because she felt the house cursed her. You're not alone. There's been um, multiple times when people have just sat here crying. One lady said, I, I, it's, it's de- I'm at a wake. The whole night she cried. So what, what I find interesting is that different people pick up on different entities or, or different parts of the human story that's been laid down here so for me it's the man Um, I've had a very long complicated experience when I first came in here and I understood a lot and then he stood behind me over there I've stood in the doorway dumb dumb thing to do and he stood behind me he's a very big man he's breathing down my neck he's he's huge Um, his neck's very thick and his hands are huge and he's very broad set Sometimes when I'm in here and we're talking and touching on... So two people have told me he's angry. I'm telling his story on different occasions. Yeah, when you were saying that, it, I it was weird. It felt like he was at the door. He was there. Yeah, I was at, it's just like, you, 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 it's you. you. Did you know that you were sensitive? No, <laughs> you sure are. No, yeah. You know what? I've had heaps of... Um, yeah, you are. Yeah. 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 I've yeah. had heaps of... My uncle lived in... Indonesia next to an ancient burial ground mm. where they dig up the bones once a year and clean them mm. and the things that have happened to me in that place and it, and it, it's weird because like you have these huge, like these wild things that happen to you and then you tell the locals and they're like oh yeah because yeah, it happens all it the happens time. all the time but then like yeah. but to you I remember my uncle I woke up one night and there was a, a huge soldier and I'm talking like 12 oh, see, foot tall go. standing at the end of my bed with so, all his armor on yes um and he has a name. I forget the name. So sorry to him, but I forget the name. And all mm. the kids knew it. But I woke up and I just remember frozen in fear. And there I'm he there is. going, am I? He's there. And I'm just staring at it's him. It's like an optical illusion. Mm. And I go into my uncle, go, oh, God, you don't know what I saw last night. Oh, my God. And he goes, oh, this guy. He goes, yeah. Did, yeah. He goes, did you do a ceremony um, before you went to bed yesterday? I went, no. And he goes, yeah, he comes when you don't, he's angry when you don't do mm. your ceremony. you got to do your ceremony. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, that. It always happens yeah. and you don't. And I was like, what? Yeah. Mm, so I'm very careful. I'm very careful and very respectful. It's yeah. really, really important to respect their memories, mm. respect the past, 
Yeah, nice. it's it's weird. It's like I have this feeling that they're un, especially for me, that they're unknowing if I'm safe or not. If they, it's you know, it's like like this guy that's a, that I can, mm. the big guy that's that standing at the doorway. Yeah, it's like I have as this feeling he's like looking at me. And, is is it okay? And I, he's angry. Yeah. So often when I'm in here and we're touching on him, a, a freezing cold line will come um, just just above the, my back, on the, my lower back, and it will it it'll um, come through the door and then it whirl around. And one night over there, there was a young sixteen-year-old girl. She was telling me about what she thought happened, and it was bang on was bang on and that cold line was just whirring around my body and I said please can you stop if you move back do you know what I've just been feeling as you were saying that, that <laughs> get out of here <laughs> you're speaking me out no you're speaking um, hmm. see in death there is life yeah it's constant one night I picked up a 16 year old boy and his mother and this boy just freaked me out the most evil person I've ever met was on a ghost tour. He was highly psychic. I just couldn't wait for the tour to finish. Why anyway, was he so evil? I could just, it's just like, it was just, just emanating it. off yeah. him. I thought, I've just got it. You've just got to move right away from me. I've got to just keep yeah. going. Um, people that are intuitive feel light and dark um, in yeah. the living and in the dead. Anyway, um, he's, he sat slumped over in the corner in this room and this place went nuts. It was a massive bang outside that window there's no trees there's no furniture there's nothing that would do that then the door of the room started swinging off its hinges like crazy it never moves i heard a soundtrack of garble male voices running through my head that hasn't happened before or since but what amazes me so this really strange smell permeated the whole place that's one of those times i said you know can we leave but what amazes me is when complete strangers come here and they see the past there was a young, he was about 25, 26, and he was walking down the hallway um, on in number two duplex. And he said, I don't understand this, but everywhere I look, there's fire. So we met right throughout the settlement. In 1908, the pit canners were evicted from their homes. It was a really dark period in our history. And they, burnt their, they came back, they burnt their houses down. They burnt down number two, number one across the road, number four, number five, and number eight. All in one night, this entire settlement was ablaze. Wow. I thought, wow. Another night, a lady stepped down into that courtyard, and you'll understand that when, if you can pick up on that man. She said, the man who lived here was very cruel and violent to his staff. And then she said, a couple of minutes later, I can hear women and children screaming. And then she said, I sensed the lash. And she walked down those steps. She said, people call me a witch. And I thought, oh, really? I thought we'd dispense with all of that. Anyway, she sits over there, one of those doors over there, they're all latched. One started banging like crazy. And this lady said, that feels really violent. I said, I oh, know, I agree. Anyway, she was the one, one of the ones that said, he's angry, you're telling his story. In the middle of the stories that night, she said, I sensed the name Abby. And I thought, well, there was a program, a television program called The One and the psychics on that program, they were looking for the best psychic in Australia. They came to the duplex to do the filming and they saw a child at the well and fire next door. So I understood the fire um, and I 
I only I knew some of the history, but I thought, well, I look at um, Driver and Lucy's family tree, and the little girl that went down that well, her name was Abby Constance Christian. She was seven. And I thought, gosh, how is it that a complete stranger can come here and and know that? And know that name. Mm. And so so many people, random strangers and islanders, see the little redhead girl that's mischievous and sings and giggles. And I'm pretty sure that must be Abby. Her father was a choir master. And there's another little girl, the fair-haired girl, which I think is a colonial child and she's mute from what she's seen. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really um, quite interesting over time to keep a journal and, yeah, just to follow what, the stories. What Does it ever scare you coming into here? Um, the last tour that I do, I'll never come back in here again. Um, just because it's, yeah, I just need, will need to close that chapter in my life. Some people have said, you know, why, why doesn't someone get an exorcist? I don't, or, you know, someone to cleanse the energy. I, I don't think you can actually move that energy because I think it partly is, is within people that have an ability to see. Yeah. I'm not certain. Look. <laughs> I know a little girl's told me that her, she took a little a girl home from here and the little ghost girl was creating all sorts of havoc in their house. Um, the final straw was her mum had clients and the, the ghost girl was playing with the, the client's little girl and all sorts of things. Right, her mum got someone to move the little ghost girl on and then she said to me, the little ghost girl hasn't gone. And she could bring the little ghost girl back. Look, there's a science teacher on the tour once, once and she said, oh, where is the rock that the local children make the little ghost girl move? I said, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's just a constant here. Yeah. Forgot the question that you asked. but It doesn't matter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it, to be honest, I'm so... It's weird. I go, I go Sitting here, I go through periods of extreme peace and then extreme edge. Mm. Like just before, it was like... Yeah, ex extreme edge, and I just feel like right now it's just calmed right down. It, it happens. Um, mm. sometimes there's sometimes there's a complete absence of presence, and I mean, um, it is. It's like a ghost town, but in reverse. Mm. There's there's an absence of life. It's even even the living, are, are gone. Yeah, it's really just as eerie as if the place is pinging and there's people coming out at us from everywhere and. But there are some nights we, we've had highly psychic people and everywhere we go, and even I'd be exhausted by the time I get home. I'm thinking, whoa. So it's, it's because it's um, it's overstimulation. Yeah. and Yeah, yeah. Actually, mm. that's what I was thinking before. And sometimes I get overstimulated because I, like, I, I feel I pick up on so much. Like, I, I mean, like, if I'm at a party and everyone's having so much fun, I love it, but I can just get overwhelmed quite easily. Mm. Oh, I'm like I can deal too. with a lot of energy because I've got a lot of energy myself, but... Sometimes you just got to go up the top of the mountain and be by yourself. Yeah. Too. Yeah. But did you, you said before people did the seance in here or seances have been done? Yeah, n not here that I know. In fact, one night um, we came in here and there was the wicker sign. Is it pentagram on the. Oh, um, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it was on the table and it really freaked me out. I thought, oh, surely people aren't in here doing any kind of ritual that might. There's a lady calling up the spirits in the local language. That table was jumping. Um, anyway, I, I, it freaked me out that much that night. I couldn't wait to get out. And I was in, in such a tears. I drove off without the step to the bus. I had to come back the next day and get it. 
<laughs> so, yeah, I'm really too sensitive for that. I, I don't know if people do rituals here. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. I've never done a seance. You can't control what comes forward when you do a seance. I was, I was camping on the Keppel Islands. I might have mm. told this story on a podcast before. But I was camping on the Keppel Islands by myself uh, on this island. And it was about 10 o'clock at night. I'm in a single man tent. And they do have, you know, there's goats on the islands and there's some animals and everything. Mm. But, you know, especially like when you spend a lot of time in the bush, like I do when I live in the bush, you, you get your bush ears on you and yeah, you, can, you, you hear what animals what. Yeah, but, you know but that's I mean? reassuring because it's predictable. Yeah, now mm. on the, on the Keppel Islands, like I th- like all the Aboriginals were slaughtered. Now, not all oh were God. the ones that weren't mm. got taken to the mainland and tried to swim back and and drowned. So there's this there's this one cave that I've been in in the Keppel Islands where it was something like eighty Aboriginals were slaughtered. I think they were. I was trying to piece together, and now this is not the history, so I, I don't know. But I'm tr- trying. I was down in this cave trying because you had to kind of swim into it and then walk up. And it was a very narrow entrance that went to quite a big cave and quite a deep cave. And I was thinking, like, how did, why were they here? And I was thinking, like, they must have known they were after them. So they were hiding out in the day in this cave. Mm. And because of this narrow entrance, they must have just come in and, and and yeah, and were slaughtered. Now, I was, I was in this tent and I started hearing footsteps walk around my tent. And so I suddenly froze and, you know, you can just feel someone's there. And I'm like listening you know to the footsteps, alone. yeah. And mm. I'm like, I'm the only person on this island, and mm. I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm listening to it. I'm like, that's not goat footsteps, okay? That's not another animal. And it's footsteps, one after the, mm. the other. So I start yelling, "Who's out there? Who's out there?" And no answer, no answer. So I grab my dive knife and grab my light, and I jump out of the tent, and everything goes silent. And then right where the footsteps were is now another sound, but it's a rustling. And I look mm. down. And it's an echidna. <laughs> now that now I was told, yeah. I was told by that, that they are the spirit totem. Yeah, yeah. that it's the welcoming. Yeah. That the yeah. the echidna is like oh, the spirit beautiful. saying welcoming. And That's then I was like, beautiful. I suddenly had this calmness over me, thinking because yeah. I was like, I was thinking me as a white man on that on, yes they they welcome you to country. Yeah, but yeah. I, I was thinking that they must be angry at me at the start because of what yeah, ancestors. Yeah. I don't know if they were my ancestors or not. Mm. I don't think they were, but. You never know. You never know of no. like what they've, what they did to those people, you know, to those other human beings, you know. And I was like, they, they would be angry at me. And then suddenly, like, oh. I think they were, I, th- my theory is that I love that place so much, and that I, I was seeing the beauty in it and yeah. respecting the beauty that they were acknowledging that. They know. But it was like yeah. I don't know. Everyone has their interpretation, but then again, it's like your intuition knows. They you know are the what I mean? same. They are the same in life, in death, as they are in life. Every yeah. single entity, every ghost, every manifestation is exactly the same. So Abby, Abby is giggly and and funny and laughs and mischievous, and she pushes on doors when people are trying to open doors and things like that, and she sings. She's a joyous child. Um, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I've met quite a lot of people who have um, owned homes on Aboriginal land. They've had very dark experiences. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I had another experience where I was on a train line, um, working on a train line in the Pilbara, and I was by myself. There was only twelve people working on night shift, and they were all in the all in the workshop, which is right in the middle of the train line that were that was being built. 
and then me and one other bloke uh, this night we, we were servicing machines and we had no machines to service this night so he said all right you, he, we said to each other up right, you go to one end of the train line i'll go to the other so 30 k's each way um mm. and we took a whole heap of like air filters and we were just going to change all the air filters of all the machines mm. now i drove to the end he drove the other way so he's 60 k's from me and i'm 30 k's kilometers from the closest person i'm out in the middle of the desert and I get to the top of this billabong, top of this ridge, and there was a couple of machines, and I'm changing the filters of this machine, and someone starts whistling at me. And I sense him here. Yeah, and mm. I stop. And I'm like, is that the wind? I'm like, is that an animal? No, is it, no, there's whistling, then it gets louder and louder, and it's someone whistling, and I, was, I suddenly just, you could feel it too. It wasn't just mm. the whistle, you could feel this energy, and I suddenly just like freaked out, and I legged, and I jumped in the truck, and just started <laughs> flooring it back to the workshop, and I'm driving, I'm driving so fast, I'm freaking out. <laughs> Next thing, probably about 20 minutes later, half like it's a long drive, because it's through the desert, through dirt roads, you know, driving, I had to drive, you know, probably 20K. I come across my mate that I was working with, and he's there and he's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, you're going to think I'm an idiot. You're going to think I'm stupid. I was like, I was at the top of that billabong up there, that ridge. And someone started whistling at me. And he starts laughing and goes, you're like the fifth guy that's happened to. <laughs> so I go back to the workshop and everyone's laughing. And, oh, you know, and one of the blokes that was on night shift goes, oh, that happened to me up there. So no one was like kind of calling me an idiot for yeah. which I thought they would. Yeah. Now, the next day there was an Aboriginal elder at work because we already got told, you know, you got to respect, like we're not allowed any, any, any in any caves out there yeah. because you know of the energy and like the spirits you know you mm. really got to respect the and if you ever do go in a cave you're not allowed to take anything you no, have to never. leave exactly mm. what it is you know and Sacred. yeah it's the same i feel the same when i'm on the keppels even a, even a shell i don't like taking a shell off the keppels or anything it just doesn't mm. feel right you know but yeah i used to call him goober um, and he's an Aboriginal bloke and yeah, he was telling me and I forget the, the spirit's name and I've told this on a podcast before this exact story and I had a whole heap of messages from listeners with that spirit's name because it's quite a famous Aboriginal mm. spirit, the one that whistles at you and the last, well, I've told this before and people are like, oh my God, I can't believe like that, you know, that happened like, because that's, yeah, that's a, that's quite a famous spirit. I think like over time that that's what happens is there's this collective memory um, mm. of, of experiences that people have. And, you know, sometimes you can either you know who they are, um, there's someone that you know personally or you know that they're related to you. Um, places have memory. Mm. They don't forget. And I also think that people have genetic uh, memory as well. Yeah. That we don't know about. Do, have you noticed when I get nervous and when I'm thinking up yeah, on my do. finger in my <laughs> mouth and because you've it do. had me so intrigued this whole time, my friends always tease me that when it, I'm yeah. thinking so much or I'm nervous, yeah. I put a finger in my mouth. Now, I haven't grown, I didn't grow up with my dad, but my real dad does the exact, exact same, same thing. thing. <laughs> and so it's a genetic thing. Yeah. So when I get nervous Genetics or when I'm never in deep lies, thought, never my lies. finger goes in yeah, and yeah. like... That, is, that isn't a habit I've watched someone do, no, so no, I've done no. it myself. I think they've done lots of research on, on people like that, especially like twins that have been separated at birth. Yeah. And, you know, that's quite haunting um, that they have such similarities in um, habits and names and what, how they've named their children or what jobs they do. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is something in that. Now, this room that you just pointed to when I said the whistle story, mm. what does that happen in that room? Quite a mm. lot. Yeah, quite a few young, mostly it's young children will see 
a man standing there and he's whistling. Um, and it, they'll replicate the whistle and it's really bone, it's like bone chilling. I, I was standing there telling the stories in that little room one night and I could hear a man with big boots walking down this hallway behind us and uh, I could hear the key chain clanking and there was a lady standing in the doorway there and she looked down the hallway and her eyes got big as saucers and I thought, oh, she's seeing what I can hear. But I wouldn't be going and looking. I thought that's yeah, it's time to go. When it starts to get like that, it's time to go. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's it's mellowed out quite. Yeah, it quite is. Much it's, now. it's nice. Yeah, now, now it's, it's nice. It's be- relaxed. It's calm. Before there was, <laughs> I don't know. It's because it's funny. It's like sometimes, you know, I said, like um, you know, through meditation and psychedelic experiences, sometimes when I when you've for me when I've gone to these, like, say, other realms in a, in a, in a meditative experience or a, or a psychedelic experience, it's weird. People say, oh, what do they say to you? And it's like, well, they're, it's like they're not talking to you, but you know what they're saying. It's like telepathy mm. in a way. Yeah, it and is. it's funny. It's like I didn't see in this corner here before when you were talking, there was like a young teenage boy. I'm talking like 13 or 14 maybe or I don't know. There was like a, a teenage boy in this corner, but I didn't see him. I couldn't see but him. But you knew he was but there. But I just knew he was there. Mm. Same with this guy. There was like, yeah, I just knew he was there. He was standing in that doorway he just there just right before. There. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, that was funny. That I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> that was I just funny. thought, oh, he's followed us over, uh, which he does quite regularly. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. I, I, I actually, you know, it's much more fun to not say anything and just see what people... Yeah. You know, it's it's not cheating that way. It's it's you're allowed to um, use your own intuition and your own yeah. second or sixth sense or whatever it is. That door when we first came into the courtyard and you opened up the door to the to the what what's that room called again? With the the servants quarter. The servants quarter, which is yeah, like a cell kind of nice. thing. And you said, "Oh, do you want to step in?" I said, "Oh, not really." And it, mm. as soon as I stood in, it was like the first step in. It was like my and and I said to you, I was like, I don't know if I'm pi- if you'll put it in my head or not, but mm-hmm. it was just like this energy just went whoosh, on yeah. me, you know? Yeah. yeah. People that are quite sensitive will generally choose not to go in at all. Yeah. And you got to respect it, that. Yeah. I um. Yeah, I always have a thing when I'm nervous or scared. I just want to see what happens. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, our innate curiosity. We can't help ourselves. Yeah, if natural um, se- selection played. A part still, mm, die. <laughs> we want to be scared, but we don't want to be too scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, I've been like so scared that... on this island. So many times I've been so scared. Young Clay took me out of South Rock the other day mm. to spear. Okay, first he took me to this cave. It was absolutely this amazing cave mm. out of Phillip Island here. And he takes me to this place. And he actually took the boat into the cave. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. And then he comes down and he goes, oh, yeah, he go, had a dive here or whatever. And so he wouldn't jump in with me. He's like, nah, nah, I'm not jumping in. <laughs> so I'm by myself and all I've seen here is sharks everywhere. Mm. You know, even down at the jetty and the feed, and the, oh, my God, it's just – and I jump in, I have a dive, and I end up catching this um, this uh, kingfish. And I was just – as soon as I, like, shot this kingfish, I'm like, oh, there's going to be sharks on me in a second. Here. So I'm, like, mm. swimming to the boat, trying to get the fish in. He's pulling it in. He's freaking out. <laughs> And I, I jump in and then he's telling me, David Atterborough did a documentary about this. The right where we were at that cave is the biggest shark. Now, I don't, this is, might be here, so I don't know. But he said to me that 
is the biggest um, tiger shark breeding ground in the world. Mm, it's right some there. Some beautiful tiger sharks here. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then he goes, he takes me out to this south rock and he goes, oh, have a look here, but just maybe stay right at the boat or just maybe hold on to the boat or whatever. It's island humour. Yeah. And I'm holding on <laughs> to it. And I'm looking at it and going, all right, this is great white central. And I look up and I said to him, uh, and he towed me around and I, was like, and I was like looking at it. And I got in and I said, oh, would, you, would you go for a swim? Would you jump in? And he said to me, he goes, there is no way in hell you could pay me to jump in this water, you know, from what he's seen there. And I was like, oh, God. You know but, who your mates are, don't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> but when I was in the water, I was telling, like, I was, especially when I shot that king, yeah. I shot this nice kingfish. But I was just like, there's going to be sharks on me in two seconds. Like, and yeah. I was so yeah. scared, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's not going to be like reef sharks. And or, no, it's going to be the real deal. It's, it's going to be, be the real deal, real deal yeah. here in a second. Which, you know, like the real spear is listening to this, like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, sharks, because yeah. for some reason my spearing friends aren't scared of sharks, but I am. No, yeah, fair enough. Uh, it's, a, it's a marine environment in perfect balance, so there's never been a shark attack. It's just the very idea. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome creatures. Beautifully <coughs> engineered, the sharks. Oh. Love them. Well, should we, um, should we wrap it up and, and move on? Is it? Okay, Rachel, back on the tour of Norfolk Island. We are now, after the ghost stories, we are now in the cemetery. <laughs> As the long shadows lengthen. <laughs> and it's actually, look at the sun going down mm. on this cemetery. It's absolutely beautiful. Isn't it? As far as cemeteries could be beautiful, it is pretty stunning. And I'm, I'm leaning on... I suppose I won't say his name out Cut. of respect, but I'm leaning on, <laughs> on his on his tombstone and thank you so much um oh i'm not leaning on it actually <laughs> i'm nervous now i don't want to disrespect <laughs> anyone you're not okay so this the stories now we're we're, we're standing right next to murderer's mound which we talked about earlier where jackie jackie and and the seven of them were hung Wait, was it seven no 13 13 oh the 13 were hung mm-hmm. <laughs> right next to it so that's a mound right there and we're in in the colonial part of the cemetery. And you're going to tell me about the first lifesavers. Mm, the first surf lifesavers. They're known as the water rats. And we're standing in front of the grave of um, Captain Anthony Reynoldson. And uh, he was the commander of a, a whaling vessel. So generally um, ships were not permitted to approach the settlement unless they were on official business. Um, but of course, if they were in distress, it, it, there was an exception to be made. And um, Captain Anthony Reynoldson arrives on the uh, Queen Charlotte, and uh, before they can launch a settlement boat, um, they see a whale boat being lowered down over the side, and there's a prostrate figure in the bottom of the boat, and it's Captain Reynoldson. He's accidentally shot himself with a fowling piece. And along the foreshore, they have prisoners that can swim. And uh, one of these prisoners is a, a prisoner by the name of George Ginger Davenport. And he had been um, an ensign during the Battle of Waterloo. And he, was, he was in charge of the colours and a very important job. At the end of the battle, he's seen coming from the rear in a dazed state. And he's charged with cowardice on the battlefield and transported. Um, Captain Sturt, Charles Sturt, is here at the time and he sees Ginger Davenport uh, rescue Anthony Reynoldson. Captain Reynoldson uh, only lives for another 11 days. He succumbs to his injuries. 
Um, but Captain Sturt realises that Ginger Davenport is uh, no coward and um, that he um, had suffered an epileptic fit, which would explain what was happening in the Battle of Waterloo. These men um, were known as, as water rats. They were first surf lifesavers, and you can see the surf around here is pretty, pretty treacherous at times. It's bound by, by reefs, and crossing the bar has always been a perilous... Um, I, I, I'm yet to understand how ships ever even got to this island or how, how they... Because now there's that, that jetty, but it's just like I don't... That, that bar still is perilous. And uh, people still come a cropper coming into the jetty. Well, it's shallow. It's shallow mm. reef and it's treacherous reef and there's waves. There's, there's big waves coming into all sides of the island. Yeah. And also, not only that, it's like the urchins here are huge. It's, <laughs> I've been surfing here and it's, it's actually... Yeah, yeah I, I've been wondering because like every island that I go to seems to have like a safe haven, a safe harbour. Yeah, and there's no. no sailing culture here no, because you can't yeah, sail. No. There's no anchorage. It's all open ocean. So there's lots and lots of deaths by drowning through this cemetery and lots of very young people and lots of children. But I really love this story because Captain uh, Sturt uh, took uh, Ginger Davenport on as, as, as a cook, as his, as his servant, and he serves uh, Captain um, Sturt and his family quite well. Um, he eventually goes, he accompanies Captain um, Sturt on his search for the inland sea in a private capacity and um, they maintain a, a, a very warm and firm friendship throughout um, Captain Sturt and Ginger Davenport's life. But I just love the idea that, you know, these are our first surf lifesavers. Wow. And hard men. Mm, very, very. So, I wonder, how would they train them? Or was it literally... They were just you, able could... to swim. If, if you could swim. And then you, you could receive an indulgence. Um, you could receive a remittance of sentence. If you, if you save someone famous... On one occasion, um, Captain Keppel uh, was saved by a prisoner by the name of Emerson, um, and he's on the Meander, and he went to thank the prisoner, and uh, it turned out that um, the prisoner who had saved him uh, was in service to his father and absconded and gone bush-ranging. You're kidding. Yeah, no, it's just a funny little, uh, you know, connection. The colonial um, community was quite small. You see people constantly reappearing um, in various guises o over time um, but I, Charles Sturt was here for um, around 12 months he was commander of the garrison so some quite extraordinary Australian characters were here um, including Bennelong a lot of people don't appreciate that Bennelong we had nine uh, Aboriginal prisoners during the penal settlement period when it was a maximum security prison but yeah, Benelong came out in the in the very early colonial period. Uh, sorry for my naiveness, but who's Benelong? Benelong, uh, he was um, a, a, one of the earlier Aboriginals to uh, spend time with the First Fleeters, and um, he uh, ended up. So Benelong Point is where the Opera House is built. Really? Yeah. 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 His is a pretty difficult story. Um, I, I think he um, he was enamoured of of what the white men could offer he quite he, yeah. he saw a status associated with what yeah. they had but it was to his detriment it's always to their detriment 
So why did he end up being a prisoner? Do you know? Do you know that? Oh part no, of the he story? didn't come out as a prisoner. Oh no. Um, he came out on the reliance with. I, I'm pretty sure this. I could be wrong here. Um, with those two, two. I have a little mental blank right now. They sailed the Norfolk Discovery. Oh, George Flinders and uh, Flinders, Flinders, John Flinders and George Bass. Yeah. They came out here on the well, Reliance. How's all these names? Benlon like came out George a couple Bass, of the Bass Strait, Flinders. I oh, know, Flinders Rangers. Yeah, Flinders. And before mm. you said Captain Keppel, I'm guessing that's the Keppel Islands. He discovered them or sailed around. I'm just, keep, just putting two Hunter, and two together. The Hunter here. River and the. Yeah. <clears throat> all these. Um, explorers it's crazy yeah all of the very large early colonial authorities and and figures were here at some point or another philip bidley king became uh, governor of new south wales Uh, captain hunter became governor of new south wales yeah yeah it is fascinating okay so so story time in the cemetery Mm. i'm not getting any weird vibes here that i was (laughs) in 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 that house before it's fine i feel comfortable it is a peaceful place what's another story for the cemetery okay shall we shall we go and meet a prisoner who attempted to mutiny and was shot and has the most ornate gravestone in the cemetery okay should we walk there Mm -hmm. should i pause it or should we tell the story i'll pause pause it (laughs) Okay, so now we're at the grave. The body of Bart Kelly. Yep, Bartholomew Kelly. Native of Kilbury. Kilmurray. Oh, Kilmurray. In the county of Cork. So Bartholomew Kelly is one of uh, three prisoners buried here in the graveyard with marked graves. And they attempted to mutiny. They attempted to take the transport brig, which was sitting off um, Cascade, waiting to come back in and unload. They'd left too small a guard on the guard, and they caught the guards off guard the following morning. And um, within about half an hour, there was carnage above and below decks. It's it's a pretty hard account that uh, Reverend Bagley Naylor leaves of this particular mutinous attempt. These these men, um, even though they've been shot, they were prisoners and they attempted to mutiny their Freemasons. And um, the Freemasons at the time were exclusively male secret society, very ritualised and hierarchical. This is the wing sun disc. Um, on the, there's a lot of iconography on these graves. Very ritualised fraternity and a very ancient um, ancient brotherhood. Um, this is the, the um, peace dove and the, the um, olive. Um, the LLL is liberty, life and loyalty. And the skull and crossbones is memento mori. It's a sign of new life and immortality. So even though they did a mutiny mm-hmm. and they were, they were prisoners, they were, they were thieves or... Mm-hmm. or they, did, they were attempting. Yeah. They still got such a respectful burial like a that's right is that um, because they because respected they were, that they were masonaries so even though they, they did were that masons so in in the masonic movement um the brothers are bound to look after brothers in life and death irrespective of their station um so when, when you are invited into a lodge um the principles of equity and parity apply yeah so mm. let's just say like a sergeant or a lieutenant or, or someone that was on the on the outside of the fence, 
was mm. a mason even though the prisoner was a mason when he dies he has to like respect that Absolutely. is that why i'm um, just just because as you look around you know like you know you know like over there is is the daughter of the was it the admiral uh, the the chief the, the um, chief. royal engineer you know what i mean and mm-hmm. then you've got the these mm-hmm. these graves here that were mutineers and prisoners, tried, and prisoners yet they have such a respectful yeah. grave because of the 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 Freemasons. This is actually one of the few cemeteries in the world where executed prisoners are buried in consecrated ground with marked graves. Um, these are these prisoners have been shot, but there are other gravestones in here erected to prisoners that have been involved in um, mutinies or uprisings and have been executed. But they have marked graves. Why? Why did they respect them in that way when it was such a um, brutal? Well, I, I thought for a long time. For a long time, I thought, well, it's because you know, it depended on the commandant. Because under Commandant McConaughey, he encouraged proper burial rites. But I think when you look at them, none of these prisoners um, actually murdered anyone. And a reason for burying people in um, unconsecrated ground was if they were murders, or they were unchristened, or they were they had suicided. And they needed to be in no man's land. Yeah. So these these men, despite the fact that they were involved in in mutinies or had been implicated in a murder for which um, other other prisoners had um, perjured themselves, uh, stood up in court and and lied, um, they'd not murdered anyone. So there, there was, you can't actually bury them in unconsecrated ground. So the, these two innocent men here, um, Bartholomew McCann and Thomas Edward, um, the the in the prison informers, the prisoners bided their time and they got them. They got um, Stephen Smith in the cooking pot, right? They got um, Henry Splawfooted Clark at the lime kiln. Um, when there has been a travesty of justice or where justice has not been served. The prisoners will serve justice out in their own way. They will wait. They'll bide their time. And when it's right, they'll strike. That's right. Watch your back. (laughs) So I wonder, with the the Freemasons, them being a prisoner, I wonder if they had got looked after in special ways or then that that respect only came after death. It's difficult to say because it's a secret society, but I imagine that they did. Um, you know, there were there were code words depending on which degree you're at. There were code words. There were secret handshakes. Um, there were all sorts of ways that a brother could recognise a brother. Um, let's come and have a look down here at Samuel Jones um, because Samuel Jones has the best, the absolute best gravestone in the entire cemetery. He's also been shot in that attempt to take the transport brig. Um, it's a very, very ornate, it's a beautifully executed gravestone um, made by some of the best um, fr- uh, stonemasons here in the settlement at the time. So he was he was uh, transported for stealing rabbits and he was sent to Norfolk Island for sodomy. This is an all-male prison. Um, this is the trumpeting angel. This is the Freemason's ring. Um, this is the Knights Templar in the inner circle. It's a very high up fraternity in the Brotherhood. That's the... Um, yeah, because I was going to say, this grave is so different to that one. The, the stone, you know. So I'm, I'm, mm. I'm thinking, when, as you say this, that he might have been higher. 
He's, this is this man belongs to the Red Lodge. Prince Philip belongs to the Red Lodge. This man over there belongs to the Blue Lodge. The first man we met. Um, this is the Rosette. This man is second under the Grand Master of the Lodge. The Acacia Sprig is a sign of new life and renewal. And again, the skull and crossbones. And he is very young. He's 24 years of age. But you've got to put him in the context of his times. The the youngest um, person ever brought before the British uh, justice system was four years old. It was a Bedford courthouse. It was a really famous case. Um, they were charged with vagrancy and given 120 days labour. Yeah. When you're four or five, Victorian England, you know, you, you're up a chimney, down a coal mine till you develop black lung and die. When you're um, nine, you join the Royal Navy as cannon fodder. You're in domestic service. Unless you've been born with a silver spoon in your mouth, um, you're destined to to the workhouse or, or to domestic service. You've got to fend for yourself unless your family is in, has you know, reason of reasonable means. Uh, seven is the age of responsibility at that time. Yeah. It's like insane. Wow. So I'm just... Do you be born a Freemason of such rank? You can be born into a family of Freemasons or you can be invited into the lodge. Obviously, um, I'm a woman. I can never join. Um, I've been fortunate to have had people share things with me over time. It's taken a long time for me to understand and I still really um, don't understand everything about this grave. These men were buried as the moon was rising and I thought, well, it's taken the better part of a day to sort of um, sort out the dead and dying and, and dig, the, dig the graves. This is basically sand that we're standing on. Um, in order for them to be buried with full Masonic rites, then um, they're buried under cover of darkness. So it's a really, it still is the, the most ornate and beautifully executed grave in this entire cemetery. And it asks a lot of, it asks more questions than what it answers. It's 1842, Cap, uh, Captain McConaughey is the commandant. He came from a family of Freemasons. Uh, it's possible this man outranked the commandant in the Masonic movement. That's so he, even though he was the prisoner, he outranked? Possibly. I don't know. Like He's yeah, so young. Possibly. What is he doing here? Um, why does he have all this iconography? Um, who authorised it? Who authorised the stonemason, the, the best, one of the best settlement stonemasons, to do hours and hours of unproductive labour? Yeah. You know, what? I, this is what, what I'm... You know, the Admiral allows, or someone has to allow the all this to happen. These are prisoners yes. that just did a mutiny, yet they get mm. this these two beautiful graves and these headstones with the utmost respect on yep. them after a mutiny. So, so this is the third man in, in, in the trilogy in our story, James Say. He was involved in the mutiny. He lost his life. He's not a Freemason. Was he shot as well? I, I can't recall. I don't recall. Um, he's still incredibly young, 35. Stop, Christian. Stop and meditate on this man's sad and awful fate. On earth no more he breathes again. He lied in hope but died in pain. Wow. Wow, look at that. He still has like quite a nice tombstone mm, it's nice nothing under commandant mcconaughey but he's got none of the um, iconography yeah and he doesn't have any it's just a flat 
to, to for the people listening this this tomb the last two you know it has like ornaments all all around it and it's in the absolute like artwork and this guy is just has nearly the same size headstone but and and just to put in perspective these headstones are the the height of me mm. now this one is just just has some writing on it wow it, it, I, I wonder this... who right now is is googling freemasons <laughs> and that movement because you know I still remember even the Simpsons episode of the of the Freemasons, you know. Mm, do you know that um, the very first permanent Masonic lodge in the Australian colonies was here? Um, they had a land grant um, in in eighteen oh one. I think they had a they had a, a land. It was St John's Lodge Number One. And and Prince Charles is a Freemason. I believe so. The same. Yeah, it, there's a lot more that you can learn now about Freemasonry and the Masonic movement. They're a little bit more open. Um, they're clearly more. Um, they um, see themselves as being more philanthropic. In the past, it was um, like a professional guild. Yeah. Like when you think about it, all the cathedrals and castles of Europe would have fallen over without that that professional yeah. um, standard. The oldest Masonic grave in Australia um, sits up there on the hill, um, Captain um, Hales, and um, I think he's 18, early 1800s. So that's the oldest Masonic grave in, in the entire Australian continent. Wow. Does he have ornaments like this on Yeah, it? he does. Um, he has the, um, the, the sun disc. Uh, he has um, the, the arch and the... Um, the keystone. He is. Um, uh, they believe that he was the uh, in charge of the the Wapping Lodge. He was the um, the Grand Master of the Wapping Lodge. Um, he has the the scallop shell, which is the symbol of the pilgrimage, uh, the pilgrim, um, the wing sun disc. There's a pile and the the good book, the book by, by which we all must live, and um, the Masonic arms, which is a set square and compass. Wow. Yeah. I can't get over it. You'd have to have someone in power that was a mason yes, to be well, able to allow those graves. Exactly. Captain McConaughey was the commandant and he would have... I, I, I can't see who else would have possibly authorised that kind of grave. Wow. Where are we heading to now? We're going <laughs> to meet Thomas Salisbury Wright. He's my favourite. Sorry, mate, we just walked on his... On no, his. I made sure I didn't okay, Didn't step on your toes. Um, Thomas Salisbury Wright, they called him Tommy the Banker, and he was convicted of forgery, sent out to the colonies. Um, he was then reconvicted, and he had in his possession enough forged bank notes to start a bank. He had £8,000 worth of forged notes, about $1.3 million in today's terms. Anyway, he was hauled up to Parramatta Court and he said to the judge in his defence he had as much right as any other gentleman to start a bank. The judge didn't agree, sent him down here on sentence. He dies in his 150th year. Yeah, I was going to say, does this, <laughs> is this say right? Uh, aged 105. <laughs> does he lasts right. that old. So he's, he's the oldest convict to serve um, in, in the transportation system. He's still the oldest person in the cemetery today. You know, I had a look at this. Um, now, he's the one I'd like to meet most. I had a look at him in relation to Captain Cook. He was 10 years old when Captain Cook was born. I thought if anyone saw our colonial history go down, it was Tommy the banker. 
How do you know how old he was when he was imprisoned? Um, I, I, he had quite a checkered career, quite a long career. Um, I can't quite recall. I think he was in his sixties when he was first convicted, and he was a very, very senior man when he was sent out to Norfolk Island, Yorkshire. Mm. Tell me the banker. Trouble at Mill. Trouble at Mill. <laughs> You're kidding me. Yeah. Wow, 105 years old. Imagine, I wonder if they looked after him being such an old prisoner. Um, I, yeah, I believe they did. Like Governor Gibbs, when he visited on that in, a surprise inspection to, to um, look at the McConaughey system, which was highly criticised by the colonials and also by the home authorities, um, he said, he wrote that uh, on the second last day of his life, he was engaged in robust conversation with his fellow inmates on a variety of subjects, one of which he insisted that throughout his entire life, he had never drunken anything stronger than tea. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think he became a minor celebrity about town and I, yeah, I don't imagine anyone gave him too much trouble. <laughs> yeah. I he was heard... a consummate storyteller. Is it is it L the the O'Connor's neighbour? Is it old? He's like ninety oh, years um, old. Is it Ed, Edward? Um, is it Ed? Yeah. Or Ed or L? Um, Ed. I can't think of his first name. A beautiful man. But supposedly he's yeah. an old storyteller. Yeah, he would be a great storyteller. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he's my favourite. Thomas Tommy the banker. Tommy the banker. Yeah. They found one of his forged notes in a little hoard and it fetched, first time it went to auction, it fetched 30 grand. Last time I looked, um, it was for sale for 50,000 bucks. That would make him happy. I'd be rolling in his grave because it's appreciated. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Wow. And that's, yeah. you've just handed me uh, a makeshift copy of one of his it's forged notes. It's a forgery notes. of a forgery, signed with his own name. <laughs> you were he was a brazen, me. he was a brazen forger. You were kidding. Yeah. But that's, he did start his own bank. Yeah, well, he, he said his to the judge. His currency's gone up. There's and in fact, well, the, the auctioneer, when he first got the original, he, he looked at it and thought um, that he'd had Australia's earliest issue, um, which would literally have been worth more than a million dollars. Um, but when he looked at it, it was a forgery. <laughs> it's yeah. only worth 30, 30 grand. Oh, wow. But that a piece of um, early Australian colonial history, like a paper artefact, the fact that it survived um, is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Mm. Thanks, Tommy the banker. Very right, he's a good fella. <laughs> wow. What should we do now? <laughs> we should hang, hang up our mics. <laughs> should hang up our mics and, and, and bless this, this beautiful afternoon with that sun setting. Oh, Rachel, once again, thank you so much. I hope you guys like this episode. Now, remember, I've got prizes to give away for whoever shares it for me. Go on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, put it on your social media story, tell your mum. Send me a message, send me a screenshot, or I'm just going to see it on Apple Podcasts anyway, or I'm going to see it on social media. And every week I'm going to pick someone and I'm going to send them an Opinal Knife or a Diaries of the Wild Ones t-shirt. Enjoy, guys, and thanks for listening. Jari apa, jari cinta, jari apa, jari cewek, bertua langa.
doing like a double.